Greetings, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis, where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with the characters, and more fun than you can fit in all seven hells. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon. We are trucking merrily along with episode nine of Valar Reedus for A Clash of Kings. I noticed, and I'm sure you did as well, that the episodes were getting a bit longer, even though we dropped from seven chapters to six a week with the switch from Game of Thrones to Clash of Kings. uh, The episodes are still longer than the Game of Thrones ones, which was a little surprising to me, but maybe shouldn't have been. So I took to uh, asking our patrons via poll whether they would prefer to keep going at this pace or whether to drop it down to five chapters a week, starting with the Storm of Swords. We're going to keep going with the layout we have for Clash of Kings. And the vote was pretty, um, pretty one-sided. A lot of people wanted to stick at six, but far more people wanted to go to five. The difference in number of episodes is, is pretty small, actually. Five episodes or five chapters a week will get us through a Storm of Swords in 17 weeks, whereas doing six a week would be 14. So it's not a huge difference in terms of timeline, uh, total timeline. But in terms of digesting it, having time to, to get it all done in one week for y'all to listen to it, well, that is what y'all want, and we what? will go with it. So let's see how that goes when A Clash of Kings starts. That's going to be about a month away. We are starting A Clash of Kings, or starting A Storm of Swords right at the turn of the new year. So that's fun. That lines up nicely. But Aziz, think about the implication. Doesn't that mean that A Storm <laughs> of Swords and if all of them are going to be shorter too? <laughs> the implication? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I always have to consider the implication. <laughs> so another... Uh, Shout out to the illustrated A Clash of Kings edition that's recently dropped. It's beautiful. And you can see a lot of the artwork getting shared in our Facebook group, our mods who lead the chapter discussions each week for each chapter that we're doing in, on Sunday's Valerius. A lot of the art they've been posting is from the uh, illustrated A Clash of Kings, and it is fantastic. Some of the art they post is from uh, fans and older spots, and that is fantastic too. So, you know, it's just uh, we have a just an embarrassment of riches in the uh, Song of Ice and Fire community when it comes to art. Today, we have something a bit uncommon. All six chapters are different point of views. Usually, there's a duplicate. Sometimes, there's two. Like, we'll have when the Battle of the Blackwater comes out, it's just going to be Sansa and Tyrion back and forth quite a bit. But in part five, part seven, here in part nine, and again, for the last part, we're going to have that same thing where all six POVs we cover are different. 
Starting this time with Brand 6, the one with Stranger Danger, a.k.a. Psycho Theon is back. Arya 9, the gang makes Weasel Soup, a.k.a. the one with Arya's new coin. Daenerys 4, the gang gets Undying, a.k.a. the one with all the threes. Tyrion 11, <laughs> the gang solves the wildfire crisis, a.k.a. the one where the clan swap Vale for Kingswood. Theon 4, the one where Theon might be a king's... Kingslayer, Kinslayer, <laughs> a.k.a. Summer and Shaggy, decoy direwolf duo. He might have been a Kingslayer if he'd gotten Bran. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, John 6, the one where John kills Orel, a.k.a. the one where John doesn't kill Egret. As we've been doing increasingly often, let's start off with a brief chat about the themes that we're going to see. There are songs... And appropriately, songs often use instruments, and there is much talk of horns and blowing them. It will also have actual, you know, songs, not just horn blows, which, you know, maybe that's a stretch to call that a song, but it's not a, a stretch to call a horn an instrument. And there's a lot of music and pathos within that music and music that fits even into prophecy. So that's pretty cool. And speaking of prophecy, the awakening and or revealing of supernatural forces is a big one with this set. It's a pretty big one in this book in general, but this is that slice of the book where it's particularly climactic. Now, another one that fits with that theme that makes a great companion for supernatural forces is heading off into the unknown. A lot of times there's supernatural forces in within this unknown, whatever it may be. In the case of Danny, the House of the Undying, clearly heading off into the unknown and prophecy, John into the frozen mountains where there's ancient magics and other things unknown. Theon is out there hunting dire wolves at night, which is less supernatural, but quite scary. Shaga and the other clansmen are adapting their skills from the mountain passes to go to the deep forests. Arya sees Jock and Change's face, and they have this creepy Harrenhal werewood that we're going to get to see. And in Bran's case, it appears he ran off into the unknown, but he didn't. Instead, he's hiding among the dead stone Starks as those growing supernatural forces grow within him. He is the supernatural force in Winterfell that we're most interested in, especially when it's his chapter, which is where we're starting. Brand six, the one with Stranger Danger, a.k.a. Psycho Theon on his back. The first line is... The sound was the faintest of clinks, a scraping of steel over stone. Yeah, Bran is finding it easier and easier to slip into summer. He's almost at the point where he can just do it whenever he wants, kind of on a whim, just like he's blinking his eyes or something. And it's interesting that as a wolf, he's trying to climb, which really teaches you or tells you a bit about how linked they are. Uh, a wolf climbing on its own is... Nah, they don't, they don't really do that. But Bran loves to climb. And with Bran's personality inside Summer, there you go. It mixes. Here's the quote that inspired our title for this episode. The wind brought the faintest whiff of a man's smell he did not know. Stranger. Danger. Death. Yeah, so he actually thinks stranger danger. Stranger I wasn't danger. just, you know, throwing that out there. <laughs> well, I am just throwing it out there, but it's, it's in the book. Hmm. So Bran wakes up and realizes that Jojen was right on both counts. He's a beastling and the sea has come. And it's come true in a lot of clever ways. It's not just the ironborn men from the sea, but the fact that they swam the moat and are literally dripping wet. 
So basically, Theon's plan worked. You know, Theon is able to look at things like this, his plan working so well, and think, I'm a smart man, but fail to see all the mistakes he makes. And because he's such a narcissist, he doesn't ever think to himself, I'm a stupid man. It would be helpful for Theon to have that kind of thought every once in a while. But that's not who we're dealing with here. So, of course, it's interesting that uh, Reek, a.k.a. Ramsey, is hanging out during all this. And he kind of presents himself a bit, especially by the end of the chapter, but already early on. He's sort of like the proverbial angel-devil conundrum, not conundrum, but a dichotomy that uh, is used in uh, literature and movies so often where you have the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, kind of each whispering in one ear, trying to convince Maester Lewin's kind of the angel here, and uh, Ramsay is certainly the devil, and boy, does he fit that well. One of the moments that just really strikes me, and I'm sure it gets y'all as well, and no pun intended by using the word strike here, usually 99% of the time I intend the pun, but not this time. He's sitting here telling everybody that I'll be just as merciful or just as great as Ned Stark or whatever exactly he says, (laughs) while sounds of Hodor being beaten are echoing through the hall. And there's just no bigger symbol of unnecessary violence than beating Hodor. I mean, come on. The guy is the most nonviolent there is. We know this from prior chapters that he won't fight back. And that there, there's no character you could have the Ironborn picking on. You know, even a little girl wouldn't have this impact I think it wouldn't make as much sense if it was a little girl, but also there aren't any little girl characters we know very well. Anyway, I'm off the point here. Hodor being beaten while Theon says, you know, hey, I'm so great and just and merciful is just, it says everything. Like Theon, it's not only how wrong Theon is, but just how, how dark he is. And Reek, as awful as he is, he does say, a few things that are true. Of course, he has bad in, uh, ambitions here. His, his motivations are not, are not pure by any means. But this statement here is accurate. Quote, Stark's lords will fight you, the man Reek called out, that bloated pig at White Harbor for one, and them umbers and car Starks too. You'll need men. Free me and I'm yours. Of course, one of the reasons he hates Wyman isn't just because he's overweight. He's saying that as an insult because... Well, Wyman Manderley is the one that uh, fought him when he tried to take over the Hornwood lands by force. Also, Reek's Ramsey statement is not entirely true. Free him and you're his. <laughs> That's true. Slight tweak to the wording. Very meaningful change. Well, Reek, Reek <laughs> did then belong to someone still. Anyways. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so Osha joins uh, in quotes. She doesn't really join, obviously. And she embarrasses Stig in the process. Stig, however, is one of the smart ones. He uh, leaves later with Asha when she, he has the chance. And uh, so he probably doesn't survive. He's probably killed at Deepwood Mott later, but he was at least smart enough to not stay at Winterfell with Theon. There's a, a very interesting, subtle c- connecting point to Arya's chapters here where Gendry is not killed despite the brutality of Gregor and his men. Even they know not to kill smiths because smiths are super, super useful. But what's one of the first things that happens here when Theon takes the castle is that Micken, 
yells and complains and curses at Theon, and and one of Theon's men kills him. This, of course, is going to manifest later in very visible flaws, and it kind of turns uh, darkly humorous. Because the new guy, they have to use someone for smithing, isn't so good at it. And if we jump ahead to Theon 5, we get this quote. He donned his crown, a band of cold iron slim as a finger, set with heavy chunks of black diamond and nuggets of gold. It was misshapen and ugly, but there was no help for that. Micken lay buried in the lichyard, and the new smith was capable of little more than nails and horseshoes. There's little help for that. You don't have to wear a crown, Theon. I mean, (laughs) jeez. And it's like, it's better. Theon is a guy that says things like, you know, it's better to be, you know, to be hated than mocked. And well, why are you doing both then? (laughs) Why are you wearing this crown that just encourages mockery while also doing so much to be hated? So you're not even, you're you're not making it an either or hated or mocked. You're going with both. You're being hated and mocked. And there is no better symbol for Theon's pathetic attempts to rule Winterfell than this pathetic crown. It's just, the symbolism is obvious, very, very straightforward, except to Theon himself, (laughs) which is a wonderful little bit of the point here. Joe Buckley points out that the the way summer is written here is really interesting. George has a challenge when he's writing from the perspective of a wolf. George talks about how hard it is to write the perspective of a child like Bran. Well, how much harder is it being a child inside the head of an animal? That seems like a really, really difficult challenge. I'm not even a fiction writer. I write, you know, scripts for our podcast and I can't imagine having to write that. That's incredible. So let's uh, spare a thought for our wonderful creator's talents. A quick mention of the manpower issue here and how Sir Roderick took so many men and Lewin laments that they did, that that was maybe a bad decision on both their parts. He doesn't blame Roderick. He blames himself for being part of that decision. And Joe Buckley says, yeah, why did you know, did, did they really, couldn't they have left 25 more men behind at Winterfell? Is 25 men really going to make that big a difference? I guess maybe he thought so. Um, and we know that the Ironborn run away when they're challenged. They run back to their ships and sail off to strike elsewhere. So maybe one of the reasons to have a large number of men is that they could spread out a little bit and cover a larger area rather than just having one force that is constantly chasing after shadows. But we don't know that for sure. I'm just guessing. So a major theme of this book is the role of princes and kings and what they owe to their subjects, like the the duty of the ruler to the ruled. This is captured perfectly within this chapter, not once, but twice. Not only does Bran show off his stark ruling, i.e. he tells everybody to surrender because that's their best choice at this point. As bad a choice as it is, it's better than being slaughtered. But Theon gets it all wrong, right? Bran is making a decision based on 8,000 years of Starks generally making the right choices, or at least not failing so bad that they lose the top spot. There's a reason the Starks have been in charge for so long. So yeah, Theon gets it all wrong by not understanding that he can't possibly, cannot possibly keep the Winterfell people happy and the Ironborn happy. It just isn't compatible. And so he ends up alienating them both. Uh, So, yeah, rather than trying to make one happy, he makes them both unhappy. And, well, yeah. For example, as Joe points out, you can't promise to be like Ned and then have someone killed for speaking against you. 
you have to allow criticism. You have to allow people to speak their minds. That's justice. That's uh, that's being a good ruler. But Theon, mm, he doesn't get that. He does not get that at all. So yeah, a lot of other people in our Flick group made similar comments about Bran's psyche being within Summer and that being what drove him to climb. Also interesting how Theon doesn't seem to fully grasp how important the reeds are as hostages. He looks at Mira, you know, sexually, like, eh, she's not bad, which is just pathetic because he's thinking, you know, he's, he's, he's supposed to be strategizing and holding his castle and even is setting aside all the ethics of his decisions. It's just a bad idea to be thinking with what's between your legs rather than thinking with your head. I mean, his father, as bad as his plan to take the North is, at least recognized the importance of Moat Kalen. Well, how much better would Moat Kalen go if you had the Reeds as hostages? Because as we see much later, the Ironborn holding Moat Kalen are constantly dealing with raids and poison arrows and night attacks by the Kranigmen. If Jojen and Mira were hostage, those attacks would not happen. A couple of people wanted to know the logistics of when exactly the maester is required to switch over his loyalty to the conqueror. And I don't have the exact answer to that, but I suppose it has to be when the conquest is considered complete. I suppose if, unless there's another answer we're not aware of, the moment at which Bran says, I've yielded the castle to Theon, I think that's the point at which the maester is compelled by his oath to take orders from the new lord uh, at that point, which would be Theon. So I think that's it. But maybe one day we'll, we'll learn that there's some other, you know, law or rule in place that maesters have some discretion. I, ma- I imagine the maester's discretion is part of it. After all, they're supposed to be the wise ones. So giving them some leeway to make that choice on their own makes some sense. Tree Girl points out that Theon's emotional IQ is very low. He basically thinks that Winterfell is like a game of coming to my castle. Once you have the castle, everyone just has to fall in line. And that's just clearly not how it works. That's not how anything works. He doesn't, he just completely removes the human element from all this. He thinks that they're all like maesters. Like basically everyone is Maester Lewin in his mind. Once I own the castle, everyone who lives here has to swear me fealty. But really only Lewin is that. And even Lewin it would happily look for an out to all of this to, you know, get Theon out, to send Theon to the wall, as he suggests a bit later. But, you know, he has to work within the restrictions of his order. But he's human. And if he thinks he can get away with something, he will. But, of course, as we know, he has, there's very little he can get away with. He just has to try to keep Theon from being so terrible. More on that when we actually get to Theon's chapter later in this episode. As I said, we have different POVs this all the way through this episode, but the Bran and Theon chapters do take place in the same location. All right, Arya 9. The gang makes Weasel Soup, a.k.a. the one with Arya's new coin. This is Arya's longest chapter of the book. Uh, I don't think any of her chapters in A Game of Thrones or A Storm of Swords are as long. I'm not sure about A Feast for Crows or Dance of Dragons. I'll do the math on those eventually. We'll see. But yeah, this is the longest one of the book. And the opening quote is... There's ghosts. I know there is. Yeah. A lot of shorter opening lines here. (laughs) So killing Whis may have been a waste. You know, she realizes that Whis is not important. 
but it did at least work out. Like it could have been someone worse in place of him, but it wasn't. It's someone who yells just as much, but doesn't hit. So that's, that's a huge improvement. Someone who is only verbally abusive instead of both verbally and physically abusive. It's rough to think of that as an improvement. That's, that's what counts as your life getting better, but it's no, no doubt it is an improvement. And she feels like the ghost in Heron Hall sneaking past him every night. And part of why she's more willing to do it is because she knows that if she gets caught, the penalty will be a lot less than if we had caught her. So interestingly, uh, as George loves to do, we get connecting points between these chapters. Sometimes they, a chapter in a Game of Thrones connects to a chapter in the Winds of Winter spoiler chapters. But more frequently, these chapters connect to the ones around them. That's something we've been just keying in more and more, like I said at the beginning of this episode, on certain themes, but not just themes, just details that are shared amongst a, a batch of chapters that are close together. Here's a good example. Just a minute ago, we have Reek slash Ramsey mentioning all these northern lords that are going to rise up against Theon. A lot of those same lords slash houses are mentioned right here as they waltz into Harrenhal as fake prisoners. Quote, Many of the captives were wounded. If any halted, one of the riders would trot up and give him a lick of the whip to get him moving again. She tried to judge how many prisoners there were, but lost count before she got to 50. There were twice that many at least. Their clothing was stained with mud and blood, and in the torchlight it was hard to make out all their badges and sigils, but some of those Arya glimpsed she recognized. Twin Towers, Sunburst, Bloody Man, Battle Axe. The Battle Axe is for Kerwin, and the White Sun on Black is Karstark. Yeah, and of course those houses are very, have been very prominent in these northern storylines, and they are as well marching with Rob. In terms of prisoners, the notables include Anis Frey and Robert Glover. Anis is the one who will break his neck outside Winterfell when, uh, because thanks to the, the pit traps dug by uh, Uncle Umber up there with his 20 green boys with spades. And Anis' second son is going to end up in pie. So his branch of the family not doing so great uh, later on. Robert Glover, on the other hand, he is like Mr. Commando up here. He's the one that later conspires with Wyman and Davos to rise up against the Freys, to kill Freys, put them in pies, to do all that. And he wants his castle back, uh, Deepwood Mott, which Asha currently has, as we know. So here he's being, you know, leading this commando raid as a fake prisoner. So they're really selling it, though. Uh, Aryan notices the important detail that no one has been maimed by Vargo, and that's the big tell. But they're definitely selling it otherwise. There's the, you know, have got prisoners who are wounded. You've got the whippings, which that's a pretty good way to sell it. You don't whip uh, people who are your friends normally. And, well, this is, uh, this is a little bit sad quote here. And it also contains some history, too, as for us as well, which we, which we enjoy. Quote, you know, old Ben Blackthumb, he came here as a boy, Smith for Lady Went and her father before her and his father before him, and even for Lord Lothston, who held Harrenhal before the Wents. Now he smiths for Lord Tywin. And you know what he says? A sword's a sword, a helm's a helm. And if you reach in the fire, you get burned, no matter who you're serving. Lucan's a fair enough master. I'll stay here. Yeah, that's not actually entirely true. Uh, a sword's a sword, a helm's a helm, and if you reach in the fire, you get burned no matter what. 
no matter who you're serving. Well, you don't have to reach in the fire to get burned because Roos Bolton, when he takes control of the castle, executes Lucan for the crime of making weapons for the Lannisters. Like he had any choice. Roos is awful. <laughs> but not much we can do about that. So anyway, that it's a good thing that Arya convinces Gendry to leave with because, yeah, I don't know that uh, Gendry would have been treated so well either. You know... I think this the blacksmiths need to unionize like the maesters have. <laughs> See, the maesters have it logged in. You don't, you just don't kill them when you switch over. They do sometimes, though. Yeah, there's the citadel. There needs to be like the hittadel. Oh. The hitting, well, it's the hammering, you know. <laughs> the smithadel. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So Arya also is getting more and more practice with her sword fighting in. She gets to, you know, Harrenhal's so, so big that it's easy for her to find a place to be alone. She's also climbing trees and getting really good at it, which is neat to see climbing because we're going to see climbing in John's chapter and it's a lot more serious. Just another connecting point between those two. She's doing little bits of climbing while he's doing lots of bits of climbing. But one of the tree that we're most interested in is, uh, well, quote. The light of the moon painted the limbs of the werewood silvery white as she made her way toward it but the five-pointed red leaves turned black by night. Arya stared at the face carved into its trunk. It was a terrible face, its mouth twisted, its eyes flaring and full of hate. Is that what a god looked like? Yeah, right. That's, that's really something. And I, you, in, our, in our Werewood episodes, we talk about why this face might be so twisted and hateful. But simple version is if the trees are witness to what happens around them, well, Hall has seen some dark stuff. It's There's a reason people call it cursed. So maybe this is why the tree has this hateful, terrified face because of all the things that have happened around it, the slavery of um, the, the awful things done to the people who had to build Hall, and then all the terrible things that happened once it was completed. Yeah, it's, I wonder how much it's also like what they see and what, what circumstances the blood spilled yeah, because you know, it, there have been sacrifices and people who did, many people who died in, in into that ground there. And for all we know, this face has been this twisted and hateful for even longer. Maybe the stuff before, yeah, was bad too. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I feel like from the very get from the very get go. Well, I guess you who knows about before Heron. Well, yeah, exactly. Before, even before Heron, though, there's there's certainly uh, some options. Like maybe way back ancient times, you know, like this is near the Isle of Faces. It, like you, you mentioned, sacrifices could be a spot where sacrifices were more common back in the day. You'd think that would make it happier, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So not enough sacrifices happened back in the day. It's like yeah. really mad. It, it's left out. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that's not mentioned here is the 13 slashes on this tree that were left by Daemon Targaryen during the Dance of the Dragons. Perhaps something we will see on screen uh, when House of the Dragon uh, reaches a later season, because that wouldn't be season one, I wouldn't think. But I really hope we get that. That'd be really cool. See a Valyrian steel sword scoring a weirwood tree. Talk about fire and ice, folks. That's really cool. Talk about mixing the old gods with the Targaryen dragony gods. That is uh, quite a pairing. It's Jon Snow. <laughs> Blood Raven coming to life. So remember when I called Jockin a killer genie? Well, the, the genie trope continues when she pulls the, well, killer genie equivalent of wishing for more wishes by making him the target of her third kill wish. 
He doesn't want to do it, obviously. He doesn't want to kill himself. But his convictions are at least seemingly unshakable. He seems willing to do it, even though he clearly doesn't want to. Quote, The hungry gods will feast on blood tonight if a man would do this thing, Jakin said. Sweet girl, kind and gentle. Unsay one name and say another and cast this mad dream aside. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love Ari. I won't. <laughs> Ari goes to the kitchen and Jockin goes to get Rorge and bite her. So, you know, he, she, she's winning. She's getting, she convinces him to do this. No doubt, though, this is partly a little luck on Arya's part. She, uh, but also she's just thinking very, uh, on the same, similar level at least, to Roose Bolton and the Mummers and Robert Clover. She sees them and realizes it's an opportunity for a prison break not realizing that that's exactly what's happening. And so that's what I mean by her being on the same level, uh, I think the same level of thinking. Now, what, Jockin is almost certainly already aware of what's going on. He's super observant, super smart. And so he has to have realized what Arya has realized, but with a lot more certainty and a lot more clarity and a lot more detail. He s- probably saw those prisoners getting marked in was like, these are fake prisoners. <laughs> he realized that he realized more than she did. Arya realized that, hey, why aren't any of them maimed? Well, Jockin wouldn't just ask that question. He would realize that that is an answer. So he almost certainly already planned on switching sides or at least leaving. But either he genuinely has this conviction about the third death or he's genuinely using this third death as leverage to recruit Arya or both. It could be both. So I don't know how he got Rorge and Biter to come, but it's not hard to imagine that it relates to him, to them being scared of him and or him just telling them what he's figured out. He's like, y'all, you're going to want to switch sides <laughs> now because being um, one of Armory Lorch's men is about to be the worst thing you can be in this immediate area. And at one point, Robic Glover's like, are you guys of the Brave Companions? And he's like, we are now. So I do think that's what happened off screen. Jockin went, look, let's switch sides. Y'all know to listen to me anyway. Let's go. And it was pretty much that simple. But of course, he was planning on leaving either way, no matter what happened here. And that's part of why he hurries Arya up here. Things are happening right then. This is his opportunity. But he's almost certainly already planning on heading to either the Iron Islands or Old Town or both. Iron Islands to kill Balon, Old Town to go ahead and become Pate. Now, we're not sure that he's the faceless man that kills Balon, but he's almost certainly Pate slash the alchemist down in the Citadel. And well, here's our proof. I think some of you, a lot of y'all are probably aware of this proof already, but let's run through it real quick for those of y'all who hadn't. And just for those of y'all who had, it's fun to go through again. She's really blown away by Jockin changing his face. But as is typical of Arya, she's not just blown away. She's like, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the terror, it doesn't really enter into it. She's not scared of it. She's just like, yeah, I want to do that. Anyway, here's the first quote. Jakin passed a hand down his face from forehead to chin. <laughs> and where it went, he changed. His cheeks grew fuller, his eyes closer, his nose hooked. A scar appeared on his right cheek where no scar had been before. And when he shook his head, his long straight hair, half red and half white, dissolved away to reveal a cap of tight black curls. Now here's what Pate sees, quote. He was just a man, and his face was just a face. 
a young man's face, ordinary, with full cheeks and the shadow of a beard. A scar showed faintly on his right cheek. He had a hooked nose and a mat of dense black hair that curled tightly around his ears. So a faint scar on his right cheek, the hooked nose, the uh, mat of dense black hair with curls. And yep, pretty distinct. Pretty, pretty distinct. I also love one of Arya's uh, reactions isn't just that she wants to do it. She asks, is it hard? (laughs) She's like, nah. Takes about a month to learn it. <laughs> George says it's hard to write kids, but I, I think he nailed it there. <laughs> and Jockin is very, very clear on making sure she can say Valar Morghulis properly. Hey, look, my shirt says Valar Morghulis properly. And it also has the faceless man coin on it, which, of course, I was going to wear this shirt on the day Arya gets her special faceless man coin, which, interestingly, she uses... To kill someone <laughs> before she, long before she gets to Bravos, And what I mean by that is, of course, she uses it as a decoy, pretending it's a silver coin to get that guard to lean down so that she can reach his neck with her dagger. Arya is nothing if not utilitarian. Hall, we talk about horrible things. We talk about horrible people. And, well, the parade of all that continues as one of the most awful of all arrives. Roose Bolton, quote. (laughs) He had a plain face, beardless and ordinary, notable only for his queer, pale eyes. Neither plump, thin, nor muscular, he wore black ringmail and a spotted pink cloak. The sigil on his banner looked like a man dipped in blood. On your knees for the Lord of the Dreadfort, shouted his squire, a boy no older than Arya, and Harrenhal knelt. That squire is Arya's betrothed. (laughs) <laughs> that's Elmar Frey. She doesn't know he, she's betrothed to him and he doesn't either. And of course, that betrothal will never be consummated, but it does create for some humorous moments. But the one she is interested in, and this is probably the first time we see Arya, um, you know, look at a boy with something uh, like that resembles interest. And it's Gendry. She looks at him and notes how focused he is, which that's a thing that she appreciates. And even more so, perhaps, his big muscles, he's muscly. And they have a little bit of a little bit of an argument, nothing too serious, obviously. Uh, he are, Gendry's trying to sink back into obscurity. He wants to, the focus is interesting in the way he's focused on being a blacksmith. He's also focused on just staying out of the way. But as Arya brings him back out of that and suggests to him correctly that you can't really do that, not here. And she brings up that he's somebody. And he starts to, as evidence of the fact that he's trying to forget or fade into obscurity, he denies that he's somebody. He's like, no, I'm, I'm nobody. You know, I don't know why they were after me, but it's probably nothing. No, it's definitely not nothing. And so Arya's right about that too. And she's, she's convincing enough. It works out. It is good that she's convincing. So Roos... Interestingly, that description of him coming so closely after these descriptions of Jockin and how plain he looks, this has been a long-standing batch of theories from the fandom. Things that connect the faceless man to the Dreadfort, things that connect the Boltons to the faceless man, the idea of skinning faces, the idea of having a room with skins that are of different people is just, you can't not look at the room at the House of Black and White and see all their skins hanging and not think at least of how similar that is. It doesn't mean there's a connection. It doesn't mean that at all. But 
you can see why people have looked for connections. Because not only do you have these these more obvious details like the flaying, but this little detail like Roose Bolton being so ordinary, which is something that an assassin has on... Uh, when an assassin can look ordinary, it's to their benefit. There's a lot of stories, fiction, fantasy, what have you, where the most common goal for an assassin is to fit in, to look like everyone else. You do not want to stand out. You want to be so ordinary that no one looks at you twice. And that's a com- that's, a, that's a fantasy trope as well as a regular fiction trope. <laughs> so Ruth hears from, you know, Shagwell and others that, that Arya is involved in the Weasel Soup incident. And he explains how she know how he knows. He's like, "Well, you're not a brave companion. They don't take women, nor do they take young people. Not you're not as young as you, anyway." But in typical Ruse Bolton fashion, this doesn't make him more suspicious or paranoid. He's like, "And that's peculiar, and I want to know why." Instead, he's just like, "Eh, you're a commoner. I don't care anything about you." <laughs> <laughs> That's Ruse Bolton's attitude. Nothing is suspicious from commoners because commoners can't possibly trouble him. So he just goes straight to asking her about leeches. And that works out pretty well because Arya is, well, she's she ate bugs. She ate worms. She's going to eat the worm out of a skull when she gets to the House of Black and White. She's not terrified by a man changing his face in front of her. She's like, oh, I want to do that. So, yeah, a leech, definitely not going to bother her. That's no surprise there. But interestingly, and sadly, she has to think for a minute about how old she is. Roos is like, how old are you? And he's like, she's like, uh, 10? <laughs> that just shows how out of sorts she is, how disconnected she is from, well, who she is from her own identity. Not knowing how old you are is a pretty clear sign that you've lost some of yourself. Now, it seems like a win, this last quote, but that's in part because neither she nor the reader, not first-time reader, obviously, you guys are not uh, at all fooled here. What I mean is that she doesn't know how bad Roos is yet. And that evening, a page named Nan poured wine for Roos Bolton and Vargo Hote as they stood on the gallery watching the brave, watching the brave companions parade Sir Amory Lorch naked through the middle ward. Sir Amory pleaded and sobbed and clung to the legs of his captors until Rorge pulled him loose and Shagwell kicked him down into the bear pit. The bear is all in black, Arya thought, like Yorin. She filled Bruce Bolton's cup and did not spill a drop. Mm-hmm. What a way to end the chapter, right? That is like, bam. Arya getting revenge. Because remember, she's the ghost in Harrenhal. She had something to do with this, a lot to do with this. So she gets to take some of that satisfaction. Now, you don't like seeing young kids taking glee in watching someone eaten by a bear. But you can't help, I think, I can't help but feel that same satisfaction that she's getting a moment of something other than sadness or being scared all the time. You know, because she goes back and forth quite a bit, right? There's moments that's really interesting how Arya, at some points during this arc, she's on top of the world feeling powerful and other parts, she feels as small as a mouse and just as powerless as such. And while someone like Ruse Bolton is going to only increase those thoughts because he is a man that wields power very openly and without shame. And, well, that's just going to be a new experience for her. 
Interestingly, too, is how, you know, from the TV show, Arya spent all this time talking to Tywin and no time talking to Roose Bolton. Of course, the book is different. Even though she was there at the same time as Tywin, she, he never saw her. <laughs> and that may have been a good thing. She, he probably wouldn't have recognized her, but that would not have been a good risk to take. Couple of thoughts from Joe. He wonders at the fact that Jockin comes looking for Arya. She's out there practicing with her stick sword out by the Weirwood, and he comes and finds her. And she's like, how did you find me? And he's like, oh, I know. And I wonder what it is that, that leads him out there. I think it's because he knows who she is. He knows she's Arya. He figures that out. And I think there's a lot of reasons he could figure that out. For one thing, he saw Ned Stark, or not Ned Stark, he saw Yorin, talking to whoever, talking to Varys and understanding that this boy was handed off under different circumstances. He understands that she's hiding as a girl and pretending to be a boy, which she wouldn't do that unless there was, unless she was important. It's not hard to put two and two together once you realize that she's important, concealing her real identity and that the hand of the king was just killed and had two daughters, well, only one of whom is a captive at King's Landing right now. So I think he just figured it out. Also, the fact that, the, you know, how Stark is tight with the Night's Watch and Yorin is the guy leading them all. There's enough evidence there just without Jake and doing anything other than I mean, seeing would, what's in front of him. She was going by Ari. Yeah, there's that, too. The name is kind of a giveaway. So He's like, oh, the Ned Stark had two daughters, Sansa and Arya. He may have also <laughs> taken note of how she behaved when the gold cloaks ran up and, and, and you know, hiding herself and being extra secretive. So... There's a lot of little things that someone as clever as Jockin could figure that all out. Or someone just not an idiot, like apparently everyone around. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it, though, that he comes to her? It seems like e either that combination of legitimately believing in the religiosity of it all and owing a, the, a death to the Red God, or more likely, I think, the recruitment angle. The same keen powers of observation that led Jockin to figure out who she really is also led him to realize what a great candidate she is to join their order. Now, there may be more to it than that. This is a long-standing question. It's possible that the faceless men uh, have something they're looking for in specific uh, that is that Arya has that they think is particularly rare. As Bran is being oriented by Bloodraven later, being taught and being mentored by this, this bloody, maybe well-meaning, but definitely dark mentor, Arya is heading towards the same thing, but of a completely different flavor. But the parallels are still there. Perhaps nowhere are the parallels more at least led to us, at least pointed out to us, than in a moment like this when... Well, we've got a Weirwood. <laughs> now, it's a little bit hidden because Jockin, like, well, like Victorian almost, swears to basically all the gods he can think of. And I don't know if he does that just to make the, his oath seem more legit, to make it more convincing. You know how kids are. You, lay, you, you layer on the pinky swear on top of the cross, your heart needs to stick a needle in your, all that thing. That, that stuff matters to a kid. So I think maybe that's just what Jockin is doing here, just being really thorough with his oath. Anyway, here's the quote. I like it. By all the gods of sea and air and even him of fire, I swear it. He placed a hand in the mouth of the werewood. 
by the seven new gods and the old gods beyond count. I swear it. I just wanted to bring up that in our chat, I put um, a couple mentions. Aaron M. wanted to point out this quote as well and said he thought the emphasis on the god of fire seemed interesting. To which uh, ridiculous Ed Tullett replied and saying that it was like he was saying there are many gods of sea and air and old gods and seven new gods, but only one god of fire. Ooh. That's, so that's what that's from a uh, ridiculous Ed Tollett. And I think that's a good uh, perspective on it because we've seen um, other aspects of of uh, Jaken seeming to have an extra respect for R'hllor. That's a good point. And of course, as we know, at the House of Black and White, they have they do represent all the gods. So, yes, they do. And so it seems like they're definitively like one of fire. They're, that's the fire god. Yeah. So and that that also jives with what we know about R'hllorism being really ancient. Mm-hmm. And uh, the concept of fire is certainly super, yeah. super. Old. No one else was willing to get in on that game. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the market is saturated. Yeah, Relord is dominated early and often. <laughs> no one's ever gotten a foot in that market. <laughs> Joe Buckley points out how the the oath. Speaking of connections to Bran here, how that oath that Joe or that uh, Jockin has just sworn is pretty similar in feel to Mira and Jojen's swearing, in that it has all these elements and fundamental uh, bits to it. It's very stripped down. You know, it's very uh, old school. Nina points out that there are two horn blasts, which signifying uh, to indicate that the brave companions and their prisoners have arrived, which if we compare that to the Night's Watch, well, and of course, this is a great time to do that because horn blasts, are particularly important at the Night's Watch right now with them being beyond the wall and everyone being on edge about, well, there's one blast and then they sit there waiting, is there going to be another one? (laughs) And it's like that moment of panic where a few seconds of, if a second horn comes, we're screwed. If not, it's friends. What a moment of panic. It's, it's, uh, please don't blow the horn again because it's friends if you don't. And if you do, it's enemies. What a, what a thing to, to have weighing in the balance. Not to mention the third blast. But that's not up here. So two blasts means enemies, right? To the Night's Watch. But two blasts here is just a signal. But it's, it does mean enemies, even though it appears to be friends. So that's pretty cool. That's, that's sneaky. I think George might have done that on purpose. Ari actually hears bats during her time in Hall, which makes sense. The Lothston sigil is the bat. And Gendry mentions that the Lostons used to be Rulers of Hall. it was the Wents that took over Hall after the Lothstons. The Lostons were thrown down, cast down by for turning to the Black Arts. And I think Gendry is mistaken in saying that Ben Blackwood smithed for the last Lord Lothston, because the last Lord Lothston was a lady, not a lord. That would be the Donnell Lothston. I've cosplayed as her. But also, notably, the Wents have bats on their sigil, too. That's right. The Wents were household knights of the Lostons, so they had kind of like how House Cassell has a bunch of wolf heads as their sigil, and they're a a house that was formed to be subservient to the Starks, so they have a 
stark feel to their sigil. Not even like a stark Brian feel. E's, it's straight up a stark sigil. Yeah, just Brian modified. E had that nice theory about that. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Brian E's theory comes up here. Well, the theory doesn't, but that concept of making it, I that. I mean, the theory does too because people have thought similar things about the Wents. Okay, you're right. Okay, about yeah. them having an actual connection, especially with the red-haired thing and the fact that Minisa Went, Catelyn's mother, would have had red hair. I think it's just that the that Riverlands have a lot of redheads. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, <laughs> regardless, there could be a familiar, familial connection just like there could be there the Starks in the Cells. So Dream Girl wondered the same thing that I was asking about whether if because it's just because is it just because Arya is a prodigy she just is that talented or do they have a purpose for her? There's all these supernatural uh, elements within these cultures about heroic figures and you know Azor High and mostly they're about world saviors like that. But maybe the Faceless Men have a something like that too. I'm I'm a little doubtful of that because we haven't heard anything along these lines, but maybe they have like a chosen one too. And well, that could be Arya. Yeah, it's, a, it's an idea. It's out there. Uh, but like I said, I don't think there's a lot to support it, but maybe there will be things that come to support it later. We are not nearly done, not even close to, I think, learning about the House of Black and White and the Faceless Men. So there's definitely room for that to still be coming. Great point by Stefan B here. We're constantly looking for evidence slash foreshadowing slash groundwork of what Hall could mean to the end of the story. And one of our most popular, most uh, loved ideas, at least as, from my opinion, is the idea that Hall will be a spot for humans to gather near the end of the story, or at least in Winds of Winter, to fight some sort of final climactic battle with the others. And so we're looking for things that maybe hint towards that. And Stefan B. points out one that might be evidence of that. Yeah, quote. I think this is a great quote. Yeah. Now that Heron Hall was near empty once again, sound did queer things here. Sometimes the stones seemed to drink up noise, shrouding the yards in a blanket of silence. Other times, the echoes had a life of their own. So every footfall became the tread of a ghostly army and every distant voice a ghostly feast. The funny sounds were one of the things that bothered Hot Pie, but not Arya. So I see that uh, I was looking at the quote, uh, looking at the quotes, rather, the uh, looking at the chat while <laughs> you were reading that quote. And I almost laughed out loud at Dom Tarkalia saying, George must really like Batman yeah. with his Wentz and Lostons. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I think I like that. Well, folks, that's all we have for Aria, this particular Aria chapter, which is Aria 9. And Aria still has more chapters in this book. We are not done with her. Now it is time to move on. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Two, Daenerys 4. The gang gets Undying, aka the one with all the threes. And there are a lot of threes. There are so many. In fact, there's sets of threes that contain sets of threes. So, woo. It's also the one with the mention of Song of Ice and Fire, the actual title of this whole series that we love so much. And much of this chapter has a song-like feel with 
the chanting and the echoes from far beyond and just the rhythm. This first sentence has a rhythm to it as well. Check it out. In this city of splendors, Danny had expected the house of the undying ones to be the most splendid of all. But she emerged from her palanquin to behold a gray and ancient ruin. Also, for what it's worth, George is, I mean, he's very much into lyrics and, you know, music. Like, I mean, sounds weird to say, but some people really just aren't, you know, into music very much or aren't into music with lyrics. And he specifically is into things. And I totally think... You're right. This first line sounds straight out of a kind of song he would, who would, uh, yeah. You can, read. like, when you're thinking about it, it's like, yeah, that has a rhythm to it. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. cool. That's a great point you made there. Cause yeah, George is, is yeah, a big he hits fan on this a lot in the, in Armageddon Rag, obviously. Oh. Yeah, is, you're right. That's basically the, the purpose of Armageddon Rag is, is talking about um, music as a central theme of that book. Mm-hmm. And here as well, as we talked about at the beginning, there's a lot of songs coming up. The Song of Ice and Fire here. We've got Wolf in the Night not that long ago. We've got Tyrion haunted by the song that reminds him of Tysha. We have the Bale the Bard song, which is a monster of a song in terms of its impact on the story. And these are all, I mean, the Bale the Bard song is what, three chapters from now? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's part of today's episode. So that's a lot. And, and, and Sansa next week is going to be leading people in song as they prepare for the Battle of the Blackwater, they're singing to kind of deal with the stress and anxiety of the fact that the city is about to be invaded. So it's a really big part of this, I suppose you could call the, the pre-climax to the end of this book, maybe you could call it. Maybe that's a bit too sexual, I don't know. <laughs> but it's the near the end of the book, just, as, just before we get to some of the most major action parts. It's the foreplay. The f- <laughs> Well, this is Daenerys 4, so we'll call it Daenerys foreplay. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, so she wasn't listening to Zaro about some of the things, like she was doubting a lot of what he said, which isn't the worst thing because he is, you know, after things that she wouldn't be happy about. So it's right for her to not take him at face value. However, as we said last time, the House of the Undying is one of the things he's not lying about, though he is wrong. Uh, on a few things, at least, he's downplayed their powers. He says, ah, they're just bitter old creatures. We know that the bitter and old part is true, but their powers, that's on the rise again. Their powers are coming back. It might be a good thing that Danny dealt with them here during this fledgling comeback rather than after they had some time to realize what else they have going. For example... Later, they turn up with the dragon horn, which maybe they wish they had gone looking for that and used it right away. (laughs) But that's part of the difficulty in unpacking what the Undying were after in the first place with all this. Something that we'll get into as we go through this chapter, but we're not going to start with that. We're going to start with how just everyone is creeped out from her Dothraki to Zaro to Jorah. Everyone's like, you really, do you sure you want to go in there? But Danny is just so confident. She knows that this comet brought her to Karth for a reason. And given that she's exhausted all these other avenues, well, it must be this. This must be the reason since it's clearly none of these other reasons. And you can see Pyatt pre-manipulating her. He's like, if you don't come now, you can't ever come. It's one of those like one-time only offer, which is really just a way to convince someone on the fence to just just to push them a little you need something to 
nudge them a little bit farther because they've almost accepted. And so you just need to, need to encourage them a little bit more. And so by telling them this is their only chance is, is a classic manipulator trick to do that. So she drinks the shade of the evening and the description is a bit similar to Bran eating werewood paste. And how about the strange dwarf serving it to her, the servitor with its little pink nose or what have you. And then we have more dwarves in one of the visions. It's strange. And then as, as is pointed out by John Hagee, we get the same little dancing dwarves when Aaron, not dancing, but little dwarves, when Aaron damp hair drinks shade of the evening, he has a vision of dwarves as well. So I don't know what it is about shade of the evening, but it makes people dream of dwarves. I wonder too, though, if there wasn't something else in that uh, shade of the evening, hold on to that thought until we get to it. But we're coming, we're going to, I'll be closing this circle in a minute, but just think about that as we move forward. So as she's walking through the house, of the undying, she's hearing bad sounds everywhere. It's dark, it's evil, it's not pleasant. And it just is another reminder of why are you here? In fact, Danny, what is up? Why are you here? Well, maybe it's because, from a story perspective, before she can fight the undead, she's got to fight the undying. But maybe it's just another part of awakening her her truths. And that's a big part of this, too. Quaith tells her that there's truth for her in Ashai. She doesn't go to Ashai, though. Uh, here, she's asking for truth. She tells the undying that she wants truth. They end up mocking her. Though she does get some truth. But how she interprets it is another matter. And how we interpret it is another matter. And well, let's do that. Starting off, there's a naked woman being ravaged by four little men, four little dwarves, perhaps. Well, that's Westeros. The naked woman is Westeros. The four little men are the four kings. Why is it four and not five? Because Renly's already dead. If Renly weren't dead, it probably would be five. So you got Balon, you got Rob, you got Joffrey, and you got Stannis. There's your four. The Feast of Corpses is perhaps the most straightforward of all, or one of the most straightforward anyway, dead man with the head of a wolf. At the time, when you read that for the first time, it's probably pretty chilling. You didn't know what was going on. But second time through, third time through, it's very obviously the Red Wedding. Question is, why is Danny seeing a vision of the Red Wedding? It has basically nothing to do with her arc, not directly anyway. Certainly whatever happens in Westeros in terms of wars and politics impacts her eventual invasion and how things are going to look when she gets there. But that's pretty indirect. So that's a curiosity that I don't have an answer for, but it's one that's been out there for a while. Maybe it's just that it was such a big deal, so much kinsling, such a cursed event that it, it ripples through the supernatural world even. Yeah, it might have been that. It might have had some implication for John, which later had an implication for her. That's a that's something, Is yeah. That a more direct connection? That's a good point because John, uh, Rob's death does make John king. Yeah. So with his will. So that is... I don't know. Okay. That, yeah. That's better than anything I'd said. <laughs> yeah, that's my only guess. But uh, speaking of red, there's also the red door. She sees Willem Derry. She sees the lemon tree. And it's got an exclamation point. It makes her so happy to see that. And there's also... Um, she recognizes a bunch of carved animal faces that were apparently at this same place. Now, that's interesting to me. I don't know what to make of it, but it's, it, it just goes to show that Danny has very specific memories. The carved animal faces, I think that's just a detail to show that her memory of this is not as hazy as maybe some people want it to be. So I don't think this is evidence of the lemon tree not being in Bravos or elsewhere. We've been over that before, but it, it tends to pop up every once in a while. She sees her father on his throne preparing to unleash wildfire. 
Now that's a dot connecting to Tyrion because Tyrion's right now in his next chapter about to have his second visit with Halene, who's telling him that the, uh, hey, the wildfire's coming along a lot faster than we thought. Is it because of dragons? <laughs> and then that's also a dot to Catelyn and Jamie because by the end of this book, Catelyn's going to free Jamie and Jamie's going to bring up his conflicting oaths and all that, which he's going to go into more detail with regards to that when he has his bath scene with Brienne, where we really get deep into his pathos and why he's so conflicted and why he hates oaths and you know all his bitterness over that. But that is related to this. So she also sees her brother holding his son slash her nephew, which is baby Aegon, the one killed by Sir Gregor. And she sees, uh, she hears the phrase, the dragon has three heads spoken by Rhaegar in that vision. So a minute ago, I mentioned Wolf in the Night and Tyrion songs and Bale the Bard. Well, here's that uh, bit because I wanted to quote this directly rather than just going through it bit by bit. So Shea, take it away. He is the prince that was promised and his is the song of ice and fire. He looked up when he said it and his eyes met Danny's. And it seemed as if he saw her standing there beyond the door. There must be one more, he said. Though whether he was speaking to her or the woman in the bed, he could not say. She could not say. The dragon has three heads. Yeah, so it seems pretty clear from this interpretation what Rhaegar thinks that means. We don't know what the dragon has three heads actually means in terms of the prophetic language. But we do know that Rhaegar thought it meant he should have three kids. At least that seems to be what the case is. And this gives us some insight into Rhaegar and Lyanna because Elia is bedridden and that's important. The maester said she couldn't have more children. But if Rhaegar thinks he has to have a third kid, well, that ex- at least partly explains why it couldn't be with his own wife because she was physically incapable of having a third child without it killing her. Well, never mind the fact that the person who he did have the third kid with did also die in childbirth, but I don't suppose, of all the things we can blame Rhaegar for, I'm not sure that's one of them, but maybe it is because Lyanna was too young to have kids. Anyway, I don't know that Rhaegar knows that. Westerosi science is not so strong in that regard. Anyway, that's a bit off topic. The whole thing is probably flawed, too, because Rhaegar is interpreting all these prophecies wrong. He, for example, is not the dragon. He's the dragon having three heads. He interpreted that as having three kids. Well, that might not be true, but it's definitely not definitely true that he's not the dragon. He's not the one the prophecy refers to. Daenerys is. Nevertheless, it's interesting to follow his line of thinking and to compare him to his sister because she's got to be walking down this path, too, and she can at least take some cues from his mistakes or at least from his interpretations. And this is the first chance she's had to know what those were, to know what Rhaegar was thinking. Even though it's only a snippet, she gets it. However, does she even know who this is? Does she know that dude saying, I'm going to burn them all? Does she know that's her dad? Does she know this is Rhaegar? I don't know. Maybe she realizes it later, but it doesn't seem that she does at the time. So that's got to be part of this. She's going to have to realize what she's even seen. There's Rhaegar misinterpreting prophecy that's been presented to him. And there's Danny not recognizing the significance of prophecy slash vision that's been presented to her. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin. There's one is taking the prophecy too far. One is not even seeing that it's there, not even realizing that it's right in front of you. One of the major things about all this, too, is the House of the Undying, as we all know, throughout the fandom, throughout the history of this fandom, there have been attempts to take 
tidbits from a lot of different chapters and put them together and come up with answers or theories, something we do a lot on the historical side and in general. But the House of the Undying kind of stands apart because it's a chapter that everything is kind of contained. Like all these visions from this one place that have such a huge impact over so much of Danny's arc and of the story in general are right here in this one spot. I think the same is kind of true of the Bale the Bard story, but it's a little more subtle. It's not presented as prophetic. It's presented more as literary foreshadowing. Whereas this is just blatantly like, hey, this is what's coming. <laughs> these things are coming. But we're as rereaders, we're over that bar of trying to figure out what's what. We have a better sense of what's predictive, what's descriptive, and what's uh, foreshadowing. Let's go on with the next quote here. This is the, I guess we could call this the ancient we've been watching you trope that has existed in so many different types of fiction and fantasy. Basically, you have characters who are godlike and full of knowledge and helpful Often their stuff. ancestors. Yeah, often their ancestor. They're often their ancestors. And it's, and it's presented this way before it kind of turns. Quote. A thousand years ago, we knew and have been waiting all this time. We sent the comet to show you the way. We have knowledge to share with you, said a warrior in shining emerald armor, and magic weapons to arm you with. You have passed every trial. Now come and sit with us, and all your questions shall be answered. <laughs> she took a step forward, but then Drogon leapt from her shoulder. He flew to the top of the ebony and wherewood door, perched there, and began to bite at the carved wood. A willful beast, laughed a handsome young man. Shall we teach you the secret speech of, dra- of Dragonkind? Come, come. It's, yeah. it's just so over the top. Neither the reader, even on the first time through, nor no. Danny is meant to trust it. No, it, not at all. It's the epitome of Karth. Like all these things that look awesome, that look helpful, that look useful, that are just a mirage. Anytime that, someone tells you all the answers are available to you, <laughs> all of them, yeah, it's like the click, it's like one of those clickbait websites. It's like you'll never believe the, the secrets that they taught her. It you know? oh, <laughs> sounds like, are you like I'm not buying this, y'all? Like, who's gonna fall for this? And of course, they don't expect her to fall for Theon it. Theon really. would fall for yeah, it. Theon would fall for it. They don't, they don't really. Oh, I don't even think they expect her to fall for it in a sense because uh, within a a few seconds, she can't move. Like she's frozen and she realizes this is wrong, this is bad, that they're doing something evil to her, but she's powerless to stop it because she's frozen. And that's why I think maybe there was something else in the shade of the evening. Because it sounds an awful lot like what happened to Varys. Varys was given some beverage by that sorcerer and that sorcerer made the flames blue and Zavaris was aware of everything happening all around him, but he could not move a muscle. That is what happens to Daenerys here. She starts to feel like her heart is beating in time with the blue heart. And again, we have the blue, which may or may not matter. But it's, it's beating in time with her. She's sort of taken over by it. She's sort of slipping into it and sort of fading into it. Like it's like she's almost accepting this, this eternal sleep, this taking of her life essence or whatever it is. And well, 
these are the types of truths that Quaith refers to, right? When she says, you'll get truth in Ashai, that's the kind of things that Danny wants. She wants to learn the secret speech of Dragonkind. Well, maybe not the secret speech of Dragonkind, but she wants to learn how to tame them and to prevent them from burning cities. She wants to, she, sure, she wants some um, magical weapons to, armed with. She wants to have her questions answered. She does want those things, but she's not a fool in <laughs> thinking that this is where she's going to get them. This is what I referred to before. You have these ancient power structures, ancient machines almost, that require the blood of the young to function. In this case, it's not literal blood, it's life force, whatever that means. For the old gods, you feed the werewolves. They, ha- they require sacrifice, and it's always the young. It's always younger people or younger things. It's always virgins or babies or in Crasher's case, babies, for example, or et cetera. It's always these supposedly pure that get sacrificed to protect the older. That still happens in modern society, just less blatantly. Well, in some places, it's just as blatant, almost as blatant as this. And it's definitely evil. George is making a statement on this, that that the these power structures have to be destroyed. They have to be taken down. And that's what happens. You got to like that. Danny absolutely, well, Drogon absolutely hammers this thing. She, she, she burn, he burns it, it comes all crashing down, and it becomes the pile of dust that Zaro says it is. And of course, that kicks off a big revenge arc, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. So they live and they know things. That's kind of what they are. They, they, can't, they themselves can hardly move because they're just creatures of dust so ancient that moving might have them fall apart. And they laugh at her when she asks for truth. And they show her things, though. They do show her truths. And maybe they're showing her these truths that will, from their perspective, she's never going to experience these truths because from their perspective, she's about to die. She's about to be killed by them. They're about to absorb her or whatever they're doing. So they're mocking her with these things that are going to come to pass because they're wrong about how the rest of this chapter is going to go. So let's talk about the things they show her in mockery. Okay, the three heads have the dragon, right? Three heads has the dra- have three heads has the dragon. Assuming it's not about children, because well, a human children anyway. It could be about dragon babies. Danny has had three d- dragon head children in a sense. Meh. Uh, or it could be the three good, writers. Good said. Good said. Good said. Yeah, well that was point. good said. Yeah, well point. That was a well point. <laughs> thank you. I mean, you thank. Thank me. Thank me. You. Okay. Yeah. So I think that one's a little more straightforward. But we, given that we still don't know who any uh, who else is going to ride dragons, uh, but we have a very short list of possibilities. Tyrion, Bran indirectly, John is probably the most the strongest of all the candidates. Maybe Euron. Maybe some. Maybe there'll be an undead dragon. Keep that one in mind because that's going to come up with some of these visions. So the fires you must light. This, I think, might be the most ironic of them. And of course, in general, what we're doing here is a lot of these theories, prophecies are the same as they were when people first read it in 1998. People figured it out what some of these meant, and that hasn't changed. But in a lot of cases, it has changed. In particular, what we saw on TV is going to change a few things. Even though the House of the Undying Vision was nothing like this on TV, that doesn't mean that a lot of those things didn't come to pass. They just weren't shown to us. Okay, so the fires you must light for life, for death, and to love. Well, for life, 
my favorite pick for for life is the one that Drogon lights seconds later, because without Drogon lighting that fire on the House of the Undying, she wouldn't be alive. So that's my favorite pick for that one. For death, I think it may have something to do with fighting the undead. Fighting, lighting fires to fight the undead could be entirely possible, but who knows? To love, that one I think is relating to what she wants to be seen as later. She wants to be loved when she's a ruler. Uh, that isn't going to work out, though, apparently. If the TV show has any accuracy on that point, they're going to end up fearing her, perhaps loathing her and hating her. And it may be because of this fire that she lights. Uh, but she's doing it for... she may That may explain why her motivations are not in line with what our expectations for her are. Some of us, anyway. Some of us out there expect Danny's going to turn violent and brutal. Some of us think that it's going to be a mistake. It's going to be seen as violent and brutal, but that's going to be uh, how it's seen and not the truth. And if that would fit here very well, if Danny lights a fire intending for it to be for love, but it gets out of control, wildfire happens, etc. King's Landing is burned down. She oh. gets blamed for it. See, the thing here is that I think is worth mentioning is that it's to love. To love. To yes. love. It's not, it's for life, for death, to love. Mm, and I think that yes. needs to be, a, I don't know what I think that means, but there is a difference there. Yeah. She isn't doing it for love. That's a good point. Now, there's some other very strong candidates that fit with a lot of these. Uh, for example, if we don't take it literally, if we think of a metaphorical fire being lit, for example, a fire being lit all across the free cities, meaning a rising of the slaves. And, and that's uh, a pretty powerful metaphor because most of the slaves are worshipers of R'hllor, thus the fire god, the same belief that has the head priest saying Daenerys is their savior, is their prophet. Thus, you could see how Daenerys, by, by intent or not, could light a fire, so to speak, of R'hllor worshipers rising all over Essos. Uh, rising out of bondage and obviously freeing the slaves is a big part of this and freeing the slaves is part of what she sees in these visions. And it's in fact the last thing she sees in these visions before she's all of a sudden being attacked by these husks. I also want to mention real quick, uh, yeah. Scott Wartman was brought up for life. Could that was, was that have been the birth of the dragons? I don't think either of us think that because this is you must light, not you have lit. It has to be in the future. Yeah, uh, I agree for context, with that. which is why Drogon lighting um, the House of the Undying on, on fire to get her out and all that. That's in the future, just barely. Just barely, but yes, technically. Uh, so. so yeah, I agree with that. I agree with you on that one. I, I meant to bring that up earlier, so I'm glad that Scott and you raised that point now. Yeah, because I think that, a lot of people would wonder that. That I think that anything that's already happened is not being referenced here. Uh, certainly she sees visions of things that have already happened, but in terms of the voices and what they're saying, they're definitely referring to the future and the way it's worded. That doesn't mean that our interpretation is correct, but that is the interpretation that I'm going with as well as you and oh. Scott and others, which is that, yeah, the future. It's what's coming, not what's already happened. I really like this. I just want to bring this up now and sure. organically. D. Cell brings up, in quotes, fires to life, like being the one to make certain things happen. You know, yeah. light their fire. And then like you were talking about- Freeing you know, slaves, yeah. About with freeing the slaves. But uh, in context, when you think about uh, fire to light for, you know, for life, 
That yeah. can also be fighting the undead, like you said, but fighting a firelight for love. It makes me think of John. Mm, ah, kindling the flame of love. Yeah. Ooh, good one. Good metaphor. Yeah. See, we got to get metaphorical with these. This is, yeah. this is, we know that prophecy is not, is, is tricky. And we know that George writes it trickily. And we know that he puts in double, triple, quadruple meanings, et cetera. That's a good one. That's a very good one. The, the love, love as a fire, as a flame is a wonderful and, yeah, I mean, frequent it, metaphor. Yeah, it frankly. is. It's very common. So yeah. it's interesting. But if we get more, if we go back to trying to be literal with this, in addition to maybe fighting the undead, there's one, one that I didn't mention yet that's kind of obvious, especially if you remember the TV. And what is being foreshadowed to happen on the show are in the books as well, which is the burning of all the calls. That was a pretty major fire that she lit on TV. Personally, I don't think it's going to go that way, but I do think something similar will happen. She's, she'll kill all the calls off. And then they'll all unite under her and she'll have this truly monstrous Kalisar that she may take to the ends of the earth, quote unquote, ends of the earth. So uh, that is not unlikely to be one of these, assuming it goes at all that way. Personally, I think the way that's going to go is with Drogon. Drogon will come in and, and light that fire, kind of like he lit the fire here. He's going to save her. So if Drogon had his own set of prophecies, he'd be like, three fires, you must you light to save your mother. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, setting fires, eh? All right, I'm well equipped for that. All right, mounts you must ride. Bed, dread, and love. One to bed, one to dread, one to love. Bed, one to bed is interesting because a lot of people want to relate that to Drogo, but Drogo's already gone. So one mount to ride to bed? That's tricky. That could be John. But if John is the one to love, then it doesn't really make sense that he would be in there twice. I mean, she just beds Dario. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She beds Dario. And I that mean, is that, the next that's one. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that would kind of mean skipping over his dar because she does marry him, but he's also not really interested she's, in betting her. He's not a mount. He's she not a mount and him. he's not into her yeah. physically. So, yeah. To dread, that's pretty easy, I think. I think yeah. we probably all agree that's Drogon. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Blarian, the Black Dread, come again is how people are thinking of him. So, and, and Mount to, to Love, that seems like it's got to be John. I, I think that's pretty straightforward. Now, what's interesting here is if, if the fire you must light is John and the Mount you must love is John, or Mount you must ride to love is John, then the treasons you will know this is the one that's really changed since the TV show aired. And that if, if the Mount of Love is John and the Fire You Must Light is John, then the treason for love would also be John. And that's the one that I think fits best of all. And that's what I meant when I said there's these sets of three within threes. Three fires must you light, three mounts must you ride, and three treasons will you know. Each of those is a three, and each of those sets in three has its own sets of three, <laughs> like this mm-hmm. one, where John is though to love in each case, quite possibly. Yeah, I mean, when you, obviously we wouldn't have thought about John very much before the show. And maybe but... we should have because of the Azor High stabbing his, you know, Nissa Yeah, Nissa, I mean, but people we... have, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, But it's pretty straightforward Yeah, I think it seems very clear. Um, Yeah, it was... I mean, he didn't do it with with malice. Yeah, he did not do it with malice. No, he didn't. He was super guilty about it it afterwards. He was just tortured by whether he did the right thing. Yeah, he did it for love of the people as well. And he still loved her after uh, and felt terrible. So what about the treason for blood, though? Now, that one, I think, is Barristan Selmy. That one's gonna... That one hurts for people (laughs) to hear that, I, I know. But this is not the first time I've said it. But this is, it's perhaps the, the most important time to mention it because this is where it's foreshadowed the first time. And why will Barristan turn on Danny? 
Well, because he's going to hear about Fagon. That's the best reason that I've heard, and I agree with it. But what else foreshadows this? Why would Barrison turn on Daenerys? Why would he do that? Well, for one thing, he may think that just by the law that Aegon is the real king, and it's that simple, that he should be, he went off to find the right king to serve, and he thought it was Danny, but he was wrong. It was actually Fagon. Now, we know that it's not Fagon, but if, but Barrison may very well think it is, and I won't, you know, blame him for being fooled by that, if he is indeed fooled by that. But there's a lot more foreshadowing for this. Consider Rhaenyra to Daenerys, and how Kristen Cole was so close to Rhaenyra for so long and they had a big falling out and then he ended up on the opposite side serving the male claimant as his top knight uh, as a former hand. And he becomes hand, uh, Kristen Cole becomes hand for Aegon II. Both of these two men were knighted at age 23, I believe, or 21. I forget the exact age, but they were knighted at the same age. They're both from the Stormlands, from the Marches. They're both from houses that, uh, they both got famous from uh, doing really well in a tournament at a young age. And they both became Lord Commander of the Kingsguard at, I think also at the exact same age. And those parallels are just too much to be an accident. Barristan Selmy and Kristen Cole were one of my favorite parallel lives instances. Y'all, most of y'all are familiar with those where we compare a historical character to a modern character. What now? <laughs> yeah, what now? She has never heard of them. No. So Barristan, I think, is a wonderful fit here. I say wonderful, meaning how well he fits. It's not going to be fun to see Barristan switch to the wrong side, but I do think it's coming. Now, in comparison, comparing Barristan to Kristen Cole, I will say that their personalities are very different. Kristen Cole sounds like a big jerk, <laughs> whereas Barrison is a good dude, mostly. He's flawed. Very, he's, he's problematic for a lot of reasons, but ultimately he is, he is a good person, I think. If you have to say he's good or bad, I'd say he's good. Really, he's gray like everybody else. But He's a man like any other. <laughs> good, good, well said. Good <laughs> said. Uh, so the treason for gold, though, that one's a little trickier. I, in my notes, I actually have question mark written, but I think our best bet, is Tyrion. Mm. And that's another one that comes from the TV show. We know Tyrion is going to be Daenerys's hand to the queen. We knew that before the TV show. That was kind of, well, it's been foreshadowed in a lot of ways. One of them right here in this chapter. I'll get to that in a minute. But we see that Tyrion turns on her in the show. And uh, for gold, I don't know why he would do it for gold, but maybe that's just because that's the Lannister sigil or there's so much gold associated with the Lannisters and maybe... He wants to have Casterly Rock. I don't know the exact reason, but gold makes me think of Tyrion. And I know yeah. and Tyrion isn't really referred to in any of these treasons. And given that the show has him betraying her, then, well, this would have to be it. I, a couple thoughts there. But there are other people who betray Danny that are also aren't mentioned. So Yeah, there's that. Like um, <laughs> for example, people talking about um, the gold being referencing the Golden Company yep, yep. As, as an option. And Brown Ben Plum, uh, Liette Rubenfield uh, brings up Christine David thought Selmy would be the treason for gold with the Golden Company aspect okay. of it all. But uh, for example, if you, might, if you were going to say for gold, Tyrion is paid off basically by them saying, you know, offering him something, but like Danny's offering him cash to the rock, period. So I really don't think it makes a lot of sense for Tyrion myself. I yeah. don't think for gold matches him at all. And I don't think for Bloodwood, 
So I just don't think it it uh, it counts him. Yeah, I I, I see. And I don't the, think I see. I agree with some of these problems, but some of the other ones I think have bigger problems. Like the Golden Company. Why would that be a treason? They're never going to be aligned with her. They're just yeah. an enemy from. No, the I don't think the Golden Company yeah. is treason. This person, like other people, were saying maybe. Brown Ben Plum sure. betrays her, but he's so minor in the Brown Ben Plum, and he seems to unbetray her. Yeah, like he so, comes back, like in the, from the Winds of Winter. It looks like he's like we were just pretending to switch sides. And I mean, so, you could say mm-hmm. like even looking at Varys and Illyrio, they were never really on her side to, yeah, to betray her. Exactly, Varys has always been about Fagon, so is Illyrio. It's not like the show where they you know join with her and then change their mind. They never wanted her in the first place in the books, and that's how it's going to stay. Yeah. So that's a very big distinction. But, I mean, maybe they trick her, and she doesn't know that they're not on her side, Illyrio, for example, and yeah. then he betrays her for gold for the Golden Company. Yeah. But it's already been betrayed. I don't know. So it's, it, This one is a big question. Yeah, I think those are very good counter-arguments. I'm going to stick with Tyrion for lack of, because I don't think any of the other answers are better, although I think they have merit to them. Sure, an that? angle on uh, the gold thing for Tyrion. Okay. Abraham Gabay, who says, if you think about hands of gold, it could be about Jamie having a gold hand and Tyrion trying to save him. Oh. And that's, she's betrayed that's by... That's the betrayal. Is mm. him trying to save a Lannister family. Good point, because that is a very key thing that happens in season eight as well, is that he, that is part of his mm-hmm. hesitation, is he doesn't want to kill Jamie. He doesn't even want to kill Cersei, really, but he really doesn't want to kill Jamie. <laughs> yeah. That's a good idea. Uh, that's a very good job, y'all. Once again, the power of doing these live with people's feedback coming in is paying off for all of us. Okay, but there's more parts of the vision here. These are the ones that are particularly shown as mockery. This is These are the ones that come when she's like, I want truth, and they, they laugh at her and show her this. All right, so Shay's going to read the whole thing, and then I'll go through it one at a time, each little bit. The Seri screamed as the molten gold ran down his cheeks and filled his mouth. A tall lord with copper skin and silver gold hair stood beneath the banner of a fiery stallion, a burning city behind him. Rubies flew like drops of blood from the chest of a dying prince, and he sank to his knees in the water and with his last breath murmured a woman's name. Mother of dragons, daughter of death. Glowing like sunset, a red sword was raised in the hand of a blue-eyed king who cast no shadow. A cloth dragon swayed on poles amidst a cheering crowd. From a smoking tower, a great stone beast took wing, breathing shadow fire. Mother of dragons, slayer of lies. Her silver was trotting through the grass to a darkling stream beneath a sea of stars. A corpse stood at the prow of a ship, eyes bright in his dead face, gray lips smiling sadly. A blue flower grew from a chink in a wall of ice and filled the air with sweetness. Mother of dragons, bride of fire. Okay, so all the threes in there, there's a bunch of threes. These are set up in groups of three. Each group of three is preceded by an ellipsis, three dots, followed by mother of dragons slash something, followed by another set of three. And there are three of these sets of threes. Okay, the first one are members of her family. You've got her two brothers and her son. Viserys screaming as his molten gold is poured on him. A tall lord with copper skin and silver gold hair is Rago. So beneath the banner of a fiery stallion. So that's interesting because it's a, a future that never came to, to pass. Uh, rubies flew like drops of blood from the chest of a dying prince. That's Rhaegar murmuring Lyanna's name as he's dying. 
So you've got that's the the pair of three there is his two, her two brothers and her he son. Could have said Ilya's name. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so mother of dragons, daughter of death. So that's daughter of death is referring to. I think that all all these members of her family are dead. Perhaps also that she was born uh, to a dead mother. That's pretty ominous, but fits really well. So the next set is glowing like sunset, a red sword. Uh, was raised in the hand of a blue-eyed king who cast no shadow. That's, I think, pretty straightforward. I think that's Stannis casting no shadow because his shadows have been sent off away from him to do evil things. Blue Red eyes. sword is really straightforward. Blue eyes is really he straightforward. Has blue, yeah, he has blue eyes, but I imagine lots of readers t- took a second look at that. Yeah. Because certainly. the blue-eyed thing, of course, makes you think of... The others or whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so definitely. I just want to bring that up, that Stannis does, in fact, have very blue eyes. Uh, cloth dragon swayed on poles, Mr. Cheering Crowd, that would be Fagon, a fake dragon. They're cheering him, They're real, which is indicating that the uh, Varus and Illyria's plan to make him beloved, to engineer consensus for him within the uh, realm by having him be the savior or having him ride in and save Westeros from the invading foreigners or, and from all the chaos within to settle things and make it right. From a smoking tower, a great stone beast took wing, breathing shadow fire. This is one of the most difficult ones. But again, we have a, a set of three, and considering the other two are false kings, the third one quite possibly is as well. So to me, with that lineup, I think we're looking at Euron. Perhaps because he's going to ride his own dragon, that fits with the stone beast taking wing, shadow fire would maybe fit if it's a dead dragon. If we get an undead dragon, that could work as well. Although I'm not sure about both of those things happening at the same time. I'm not so sure Euron will ride an undead dragon. But it could be that he rides a dragon, it and him are killed, and then the dragon is raised. That's certainly possible. And the reason it would be taking, it would be taking uh, flight from a smoking tower would be because of the high tower, which Euron is about to apparently, if not taking the high tower, he's about to take this, the uh, old town itself. So Slayer of Lies is the phrase attached to that set of three, which is pretty straightforward, I think. Even though we're not sure that it's Euron, a lot of people think that it could be Grayscale, which I think is a, is a nice theory. John Connington as well. The problem with it being John Connington or Grayscale as well, John Connington is not a king, so it doesn't fit that pattern. And we just had Aegon referred to in the previous line. So I don't think they would mention Aegon and John Connington back to back like that. And what's the lie to slay with John Connington? It's Fagon is the lie that needs to be slayed, not John. John is fa- is has fallen for that lie himself. He's not the liar. He is taken in by the lie. So I don't think that works so well. Even though I think grayscale is important, uh, I don't think that it's being referenced in that line. Yeah, and I think the other big thing here is that um, in that final section, you know, about her silver and the, the blue, all that. Yeah, is that it's you know romantic interests. Mm-hmm. You know, because you yeah. have Drogo referenced in the very beginning. Yes. Um, and then you have Euron or of Victorian, course. you know. Or, or maybe yeah. Connington. But not. yeah, you know, I doubt, you doubt he's trying to marry her. Yeah. Um, and then John. Yes, John So you again. have three romantic interests. Yes. So I think that's the, I think people, there's a lot of creative answers here, but I think the best thing to do is to stick with the patterns. Find answers that stick with the patterns that are be- being laid out here because there are very distinct patterns. As we saw with the first set of three, it was all her close family members. This one is false. The second set is false kings. The third set, as Ashea as indicated, her silver is trotting through the grass to a darkling stream beneath the sea of stars. That's where she got married. 
A corpse stood at the prow of a ship. Eyes bright in his dead face. Gray lips smiling sadly. Gray lips smiling sadly is Greyjoy. There were some people think that's Connington. I acknowledge that theory, but I think it's not quite right. He's not smiling sadly about anything. He does have grayscale, and that would explain why he's dead. But, um, and he would be a corpse because everybody thought Connington was dead. He's kind of a figuratively dead man because everybody thought he had drank himself to death. But again, we have Slayer of Lies, though three things you mentioned before are have to do with, you know, lies or, you know, whatever, however you want to refer to it. And Bride of Fire. Yeah, Bride of Fire. Yeah, so the blue flower grew from a chink in a wall of ice, filled the air with sweetness. That's very clearly Jon Snow. The wall of ice is super straightforward. The blue Mm. flower is Lyanna. So that's grew from a chink in a wall of ice. There you go. Uh, Mother Dragons, Bride of Fire. Yeah, Bride of Fire refers to as well her marriage to fire and with Mary Mazdur, where which was described at the time. If you all recall, recall, George was very flowery with his descriptions of the flame, and it was like women. It was like dancers, and yeah. So the the, the bride, uh, you, the use of the word bride there is very very poignant. So I think we have most of this figured out. I think there's still a lot of doubt on a lot of them. But I think the thing that really holds a lot of these answers together, again, is the structure, the three of three of three. Yeah. And the fact that the threes are all of a like sort. Yeah, like family and fakes. And I would say family, I would yeah. say something else that's uh, not appropriate necessarily. <laughs> family, <laughs> f- fakes, and f- Yeah. <laughs> 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 and and these a lot of these things that we're suggesting for the candidates to fill in here are corroborated elsewhere. For example, Danny's later going to have this vision of a dude with blue lips and an icy cold member like inside her. Oh. And uh, well, hey, you're on. Nah, I see you. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I mean, he's trying to marry her. We know that. Uh, <laughs> the fact that he's seen as a corpse—that's the part that kind of worries me or makes me wonder not worries me but makes me wonder like why is Euron seen as a corpse yeah that's maybe it's because he's gonna be so associated with undeath maybe he's gonna be the one that well elites lets the others into the world what it makes me think of a little bit is the idea of Victorian mm-hmm. as the corpse you know um yeah. as him because he's the one at the prow of the ship he's the one going to get Danny and he thinks oh, yeah. he's gonna marry her he's the vessel but he's dead He's, he's like, vessel. Euron's just going to want to kill him. That actually fits really well because there's no Drogo. It's her silver. Yeah. It's the, it's the thing that carries her to him. Yeah. And the blue flower, the chink of the wall on the ice. Yeah, it's, it's not John. That's yeah. a symbolic of him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. That's a great interpretation. Okay. Well, folks, I think we've done a good job here. I'll pat, I'm going to pat us on the back here <laughs> with this. But to be fair, so much of this was done before us. The groundwork for the House of the Undying has been set since 1998. People have been working on this chapter, trying to figure it out, changing their guesses when new information comes out, which is what we're doing here. The TV show, as much as you may hate it, it is information. It definitely told us things, whether you want to admit it or not, whether you like it or not. George told the showrunners things, and they may have botched some of those things or a lot of those things, but he told them some of those things, and they put those things on TV in some form or fashion. (laughs) All right, last bit in this chapter is another quote. There is, this is where things are different. There's no clear pattern here. This is when the vision's moving faster. It starts to speed up. Quote. Shadows whirled and danced inside a tent, boneless and terrible. A little girl ran barefoot toward a big house with a red door. 
Miri Mazdur shrieked in the flames, a dragon bursting from her brow. Behind a silver horse, the bloody corpse of a naked man bounced and dragged. A white lion ran through grass taller than a man. Beneath the mother of mountains, a line of naked crones crept from a great lake and knelt shivering before her, their gray heads bowed. Really interesting with that one. Uh, There's a lot of blood magic in it. And I think maybe what we're seeing there is that those are in order, a a set of series of visions in order, but that doesn't even quite work. Shadows World and Dance inside a tent, Boonson Terrible. Okay, that's Miri dancing with the shadows. Cool. After that happened, Danny had her fever dreams, which is when she had a vision of herself running barefoot towards a big house with a red door. Following that, Miri Mazdor was, was given to the flames, which is when you get the shrieking in the flames and the dragon bursting from her brow, because of course the dragons were burst in that pyre. Behind a silver horse, the bloody corpse of a naked man bounced and dragged. That's the wine cellar who tried to poison her. However, that happened before the Miri Mazdor stuff. So my idea that these are in order falls apart there. A white lion ran through the grass taller than a man. The simple answer with that one is it's the Hrakar that Drogo ran off to go hunt while, while the poison wine cellar incident was happening. However, I prefer the more subtle interpretation. A white lion could be Tyrion. Tyrion's hair is so white that is so light colored that it's white. And who would have grass taller than, a, than him but a dwarf, a short man? Eh, that fits pretty darn well, doesn't it? Behind, beneath the mother, so that could be something to come. That's maybe to come if that refers to Tyrion, which I think it does. This last one is definitely something to come. Beneath the mother mountains, a line of naked crones crept from a great lake and knelt shivering before her, their gray heads bowed. I think that is referring to her burning all the calls and basically conquering the Dothraki at their home city. And the reason they would go into the lake is because of the, well, if there's a great conflagration of dragon fire everywhere, well, a lake is a decent place to go take shelter. Certainly the only option in the flat plains <laughs> of Vase Dothrak, you don't have like, there aren't caves to go hide in. There's just that one mountain. The Mother Mountains is a solitary mountain. And uh, I don't think it's so close that they can go to it. Plus they're not allowed to. Women aren't allowed to climb the Mother of Mountains. Strange rule, but it is a rule. I wonder too about that. I brought this up earlier in the chapter that Drogon saves her from the House of the Undying. And I wonder if maybe Drogon will save her from the calls and the Dosh Kaleen. I wonder, because the way it was portrayed on TV with her being sneaky and setting a fire and all that, I just don't think that works. Not only because it's just a little much for her to do by herself, but because I just don't think that she's going to be able to burn herself again and survive. George said that was a miracle. I don't think that's going to happen again. So the only other answer is... Well, her dragon saves her. I, I just, the only other answer I can think of, even conceive of, is that her armies come find her all the way in Vase Dothrak, which is, that's really, really far for them to go. And why would they think she's there? She rode off on her dragon. She didn't ride off with Dothraki. Why would they search for her all the way up there? So there's just, a, it's one of those things where like the heads of the dragon, there just aren't that many options. We can narrow it down because uh, it's not a wide variety of possibilities. The last bit of the vision we didn't quote, it's just the slaves calling her mother. And of course, that's very straightforward. She's going to break the chains, free slaves all all over the place. And maybe that's a fire that she lights to set more slaves free. So that's the point at which Drogon saves her. Once she sees the visions of the mother, of, of them all calling her mother, and then things get dark and dangerous and Drogon saves her. So 
you wonder, uh, too, about how this ends, right? Daenerys is a force for change. Not, uh, and that's an interesting way to phrase it, I think. And it's an important way to phrase it. She's a force for change. She wants to be good. Most of the ways she changes things are good. But she's also destructive in the way she gets rid of the old ways. You have to set fire to those things. The old corrupt ways must be destroyed. But it's pretty hard to destroy old corrupt ways without some collateral damage. Because those corrupt ways... Those corrupt people know how to entrench themselves, and that means leveraging the lives of innocents to keep them in power. There's kind of no way to get rid of power structures like that without harming innocents. Um, the cynic in me believes that. But they have to be done with, done away with. Institutions that are consistently killing and torturing and harming and corrupting and viewing evil. If the only way to kill evil is to k- destroy some good in the process, then so be it. Uh, I mean, that's it's rough moralizing, but it's difficult to see things another way if that's literally your only option. I do think it's interesting that she lets Piatri live here. And that's a piece of mercy that maybe shouldn't have been given. She, he clearly didn't intend good things for her. Or maybe Danny just thinks that he's not complicit because she, he doesn't know what the Undying truly wanted. I'm not sure, but I think that was an interesting choice on her part to not have him killed. Joe Buckley points out that one uh, description that's, uh, that comes through when she's tasting the shade of the evening is that it tasted like molten gold, which is <laughs> like a little reference to Viserys, like in the back of her head. She's thinking about him from time to time because she's got a little bit of guilt about her dead brother. Uh, he also mentions, and I took note of this as well, the Ebony and Weirwood door, which is the same description of the door of the House of Black and White. I wonder if George is just doing a little nod to these creepy ancient mystical houses and, and showing some sort of connection there, and while also referencing, you know, Weirwood is still a, a mystical wood. <laughs> and yeah, you wonder. And I mean, <laughs> we have the shade of the evening and werewoods, you know, the paste of both of them, <laughs> this strong association of red and white and blue and black, like the two opposites. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So Joe also wonders the same thing I did, whether D- Danny ever realizes that that's Rhaegar or that that's Ares and um, what she's been told. I mean, Barristan sets her straight about some things later about her father, and and to her credit, she accepts a lot of it. But you wonder, but he's also working against what Viserys said, which Viserys was not completely honest with her about their father. And that's something that she, along the way, gradually learns the truth of. But this early on, of course, there's no Barristan yet. Jorah wasn't really that honest about Ares, or at least maybe he, he wasn't dishonest. He just wasn't forthcoming about it. So that's a piece of reckoning that's still yet to come. She hasn't fully come to terms with what Ares was. Certainly not at this point. Joe makes a great point here. It would be interesting if she sees Jamie and recognizes him from this vision. It's like, oh, I've seen you in my visions before. And if that happens with anybody else, too. But Jamie's a really big, important one. If so, if Rhaegar really did whisper Lyanna, which we are pretty sure he did, you can... Uh, Imagine if if he heard that, if Robert heard Rhaegar say that, he probably didn't because it's a battle and it says whisper, Lyanna. But whoa, that would really make Robert, that would really set him off even more than he already was. And of course, Robert is already kind of a, has a temper, we'll say, or had a temper. <laughs> Couple of comments, a lot of questions from y'all on this one. Let's go through that here. A couple of super chats from Jacob Quirk. 
Hey, Aziz, do you think the House of the Undying has this crazy effect on anyone who enters, or is Danny special? Could anyone seek enlightenment there? I'm glad you asked that question because it's peculiar uh, that the Undying wanted to kill Danny or take her life force, yet it's so hard to find them. Why does she need special instructions? Why does she need this very specific way to get through the maze if they want her to get through the maze? Well, I think the answer there is that they don't want anyone to get through the maze. They want that maze to, to throw off almost anyone. But they wanted Danny to get through it, but they can't just turn it off. <laughs> so they uh, told Pyatt Pre to tell her how to get through. So I don't, but I don't think so. Uh, but I do think most people who enter are probably not worthy. Uh, there's nothing that they, they wanted something from Danny because she's special. Maybe because she's Targaryen, she has magic blood. Maybe she's it's because she's a savior, according to the Rolora religion. There's definitely magic and destiny and all this around her. And that may be what they want. Pa- there's power in King's blood. That concept could apply in other ways, or it could just be that simple here. They want the power in her because she has King's blood, Queen's blood. Whereas the vast majority of people don't have that, and thus they go into the House of the Undying and just are never seen again. Or maybe they walk right out having seen nothing. Because if people could consistently go to the House of the Undying and vanish, that would be a good way to get enemies. That's also a way to, you know, get a reputation to keep people away. And people are scared of the warlocks. And that would be one of the reasons why, maybe, if every ancient house of Karth has someone that vanished in the House of the Warlocks, well, that, that fear would be widespread. And they might be too afraid to do anything about it because they're afraid of it happening to them. Super chat from Stephen Stark. No time to hang out today, but needed to stop to say Ashe is the best. Thank you, that is all. Well, thank you, Stephen Stark. Ashe is the best. I second that. Will Moss, could Dario take a payment to betray her? He seems like the kind of guy that might do that in the show. He just stays behind. The books may have a bigger story there. Yeah, and in fact, he may be bitter that she left him and that uh, he's being Dario, you know, is moving on to something else and that something else might be an opportunity to move up. And with Danny gone to Westeros, he may gamble that she never comes back and make his move. Yeah. That's possible. The problem with that is I don't know if that would be terribly meaningful to her. If she is in Westeros and she finds out that she's been betrayed in Slaver's Bay, that it's been conquered from out from under her, does she really, what does she do about that? Probably nothing, right? She's just too, she's going to have her hands full in Westeros. So I could see that being a decent theory, but I'm not sure it, it would have enough impact on her. So we'll see. Just FYI, yeah. um, Will Mossy just clarified something I was thinking too that he, the, he was thinking the betrayal would be before she's in Westeros. Oh, like most clearly. Okay, I didn't uh, catch that. Good yeah, point. Good I point. Wanted to say something, but I, I, yeah, I'm glad he clarified for sure that. Okay, yes. that would have a lot more impact on her if it happened right in front of her face. Yeah. Okay, that's a good good idea. I, I was not framing your question properly, but that I think that does give the. Uh, give it more support. I think that's a more likely than her having that happen off page when she's gone. Cool. Liat Rubenfeld says Jamie would be the white line. He's the one associated with white. Mm, that is a fair point. He is a white, yeah, white lion, Kingsguard lion. That's a great point. Never thought about it that way. I wonder how Jamie and uh, Danny's arcs could come together. An issue there? Uh, not an issue, but in the show, they had no connection whatsoever pretty much. So uh, 
Maybe, but that doesn't say much. I mean, the show didn't have room for a lot of the character connections that the books are going to have. So there is definitely room for that. Yeah, it's worth thinking about what the grass could be then if a white lion ran through grass taller than a man. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. Like, it makes you think, obviously, about the Thraki Sea and about things on that side of the world, I think. Yeah. So there's that's an issue with it, I think. And I, I can't, I'm, I don't know what context I think Jamie could be in where he was in this situation with remotely tall grass at all. Yeah. <laughs> or with any, I don't know what symbolizes grass yeah hmm. what grass i like the idea but yeah i guess that is a maybe maybe a flaw in the theory there but but it's worth considering for sure from callista cross hey callista good to hear from you thanks for the content shay is the best yes she is see lots of people agree <laughs> also the rockar rockar yeah the white they're line, white yeah. lions definitely definitely just about that. still wears that as her pelt yeah, just about that no yeah. i just i worth mentioning i guess definitely <laughs> Uh, so I want to throw out a, a, a obscure, semi-obscure reference here that is not directly related to The House of the Undying, but is surely an inspiration for it. George R.R. R. Martin wrote a short story in his Thousand Worlds universe called The Stone City. And The Stone City is a wonderful, but very dark and lonely feeling story about a, uh, well, I won't describe it. It just has a, a feature. Its main feature is this deep, dark, uh, hall, it's a sci-fi, keep in mind, where this guy has to stay in the center stair, but all around him, he's seeing visions of different planets and images and everything, and he's not supposed to go to cross over. But, well, maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. That's part of the story. But it's awesome. It's really good. It's ancient. It's creepy. And you can absolutely see the connections to The House of the Undying. George kind of borrowing from himself, building on a cool idea he had in a short story and making it part of an epic instead. And uh, it changed a lot about it, but the seed is there. And I think you guys would appreciate that. So Stefan B gets into some of the same questions that I brought up. In fact, Stefan is some of the part, big part of the reason why I asked some of these questions. For example, the, the bit about why they wanted, you know, why is, did they make it so hard for Danny to find her way to them if they wanted to drain her? Well, I think I answered that already. But why did they want her in the first place? That's another one. And maybe again, it's about the Targaryen blood and maybe it's about her, you know, the royalty and all that. But what would they have actually gained from her? I guess it's just continue a way for them to continue to extend their life. Uh, they're undying. And the reason they're undying is because they constantly steal life force from people. And this, I can't help but be reminded, especially because it's, it comes up in one, of his, in one of her visions, the bit about Stannis and not having a shadow, is how Melisandre taking shadows from Stannis also lowers his life force and, and reduces his fire of life, as they put it. Very, very cool. I love this chapter. It's 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 still powerful. It's still question. It's still mysterious, and we still come back to it even so much later, far down the line. We're going to still be looking at the House of the Undying even when the series is completely over. John Hagee with a few comments. He says that the Dothraki points say it is said similarly to it is known, but it's not quite the same. I guess maybe it is said is uh, the version of that phrase, but less certain. Like people, it's like a, it's like a lot of people are saying. Instead of a lot of people yeah, know this. Yeah, I mean, the example that he gives is, quote, Khaleesi, it is said that many go into the Palace of Dust, but few come out. Yeah. It is said, Jogo agreed. Right, so, so you know, is, yeah, that's yeah. an exact example of that. Which is kind of what I was talking about before, too. It touches on the fact that it's unclear whether these disappearances are really that common or whether they're just the rumors of people disappearing, or whether that's just such a sensational thing that it would be repeated and give the impression that it happens more often than it does. 
Um, but Pyatt was certainly surprised that she came out. <laughs> he expected the Undying to win. What was his plan there? Was he just going to like walk, sneak away? Everybody's Danny's like whole crew is out there. If she doesn't come back out, they're going to be mad at Pyatt. <laughs> so I don't know what his plan was to escape there. John is also the one that reminded us about the strange connection between these uh, dwarven figures in the dreams and the shade of the evening. So I don't have a great answer on that one. I, I don't know what his question was about the what, what, what just what is up. He just said what is up with the dwarf orgies and shade of the evening. Oh, and, and shade <laughs> of the evening. Why they choose that yeah. that form of dwarves? I don't know about that, but I, I did want to clarify because there was some confusion in our chat about why we're so confident, even especially now, about um, the naked woman woman being Westeros. Mm-hmm. It's because originally we have four four male dwarves, four kings, and in the Forsaken chapter, there are men and women. Like kings right, and queens. Right, which is when there's queens in the, in, in the play. Um, so I yes, just, that, that's like clinches it for anyone who was curious. Um, and so, but as for why the Shade of the Evening seems to want to portray it as dwarves, I don't know, maybe because all humanity is small when you look at it from that lens. When you're looking at the, the scale of a planet. Uh, uh, the scale a like a, of a whole country. That's the woman and they're small compared to her. I don't know. That's that my best Yeah, guess. it doesn't really explain the actual tiny person that hands her the shade of the evening. No, you're right. In, you're right. The, the living being there. But it is, maybe it's it's part of this pastiche of, of not very conclusive evidence. <laughs> yeah. But one cool thing, well, it's not one cool thing. One of many cool things is that we will be, you know, quite a while from now, we will eventually be getting to that, the Forsaken chapter, and we'll be able to take a closer look and we will have time Re-look in between to- it think about yeah we've covered it already that's true we'll get to look at it again yeah but... we'll have to we'll put it we're, we're gonna take a second look given new things that we've learned but yeah we're not we won't completely start from scratch <laughs> i did a poll on twitter as of this episode the poll hadn't finished but it was pretty decisive the question asked was are dragons the cause or effect of or a cause or the cause rather the cause or an effect of magic returning and 69% said an effect, 31% said a cause, uh, or the cause. So people are pretty distinctly decided on it being an effect. One of the main reasons cited is that the others were already active. Melisandre had, was somewhat active. There's definitely some magic in the world before the dragons came back. It's just that more magic seemed to come at the same time as them. Yeah, more magic came, but yeah, it can be definitively said that magic did still exist before the dragons were born. Yes. And, you know, even time period, I think, in between uh, beginning of the start of the series and earlier, because we hear tales like, why don't our spells work that well anymore? Yeah. You know. Definitely. Tapered off. One last comment from Leaf Underhill says, the other visions right before and after the white line are simple, literal ones. So that's an argument that it's just about the Rakhar. And I I think that's right. When I look back at it and like every single one has no great symbolism Mm. to it. They're just things that Danny has experienced. Okay. That's Um, that's very valid. Except for something she hasn't experienced, obviously, because she's looking forward into into the future as well. Yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. So it is still a vision, but none of it is symbolic. And that is great, y'all. We got a lot of smart people thinking about this, a lot of different interpretations, a lot of great points being made. This is, to me, this is when these live streams shine the most when we get into these things that are uh, lots of great, valid interpretations, and we can all kind of respect each other's preferences because uh, it's hard to say one person is more right than the other. And why would we bother with that? Well, it's not important. This isn't a competition. It's supposed to be fun. 
We say our ideas, we enjoy them, we move on. Tyrion 11 this time. The gang solves the wildfire crisis, a.k.a. the one where the clans swap Vale for Kingswood. I enjoy Tyrion and Shaga's banter, and I'm sad that this is the last we get of it. For now, there's hope that they'll be reunited someday. Opening quote is thus. If you die stupidly, I'm going to feed your body to the goats. Tyrion threatened as the first load of stone crows pushed off from the clay. And of course he says, you don't have goats. <laughs> Shaga and Tyrion always jesting about goats. So, yeah, so I hate to see Shaga go, but at least we can be pretty sure he survived and is still out there. So more on that later. But for now, we get to see, uh, this is a good example of an event that has multiple perspectives. And because King's Landing is filled with uh, a lot of people, several different POV characters, three chapters from now is going to be Sansa 4, and we're going to get this quote. Lord Stannis wants to smoke out the imp savages. Danto swayed as he spoke, one hand on the trunk of a chestnut tree. A wine stain discolored the red and yellow motley of his tunic. They kill his scouts and raid his baggage train. And the wildlings have been lighting fires, too. The imp told the queen that Stannis had better train his horses to eat ash, since he would find no blade of grass. I heard him say so. Hmm. Three fires must you light, wildlings. <laughs> <laughs> Three fires must you light, too, Stannis. So basically, they're having they're fighting fire with fire, sort of. It sounds like so. This is this is basically Sansa seeing all the smoke from across the river because there's so much of this fighting going on in the Kingswood, and it sounds like they're both just. It's a metaphor, almost a microcosm for war on a small scale. They're just, no one's winning. They're just destroying everything. All the, the people, the nature, all the food and the grass, every little bit. It's just being annihilated. Another big important part of not just this chapter, but in particular this chapter, but all over Tyrion's arc, especially in the Clash of Kings, is Bronn. And Bronn, not just being interesting in his own way, but being ambitious in how focused he is. You can tell if you really take a close look at him, just how intent he is, how ambitious he is. He's really has his sights set on rising high. And as we know, he gets there. So let's look at this quote. He still had Bronn's hirelings, near 800 of them now, but swords were notoriously fickle. Tyrion had done what he could to buy their continued loyalty, promising Bronn and a dozen of his best men lands and knighthoods when the battle was won. They drunk his wine, laughed at his jests, and called each other Ser until they were all staggering. All but Bronn himself, who'd only smiled that insolent dark smile of his, and afterward said, they'll kill for that knighthood, not knighthood, <laughs> they'll kill for that knighthood, but don't think they'll ever die for it. Yeah, it's really interesting because Bronn is just his, he's has his eye on the prize. He doesn't get drunk. He doesn't, you know, spend time looking at girls when he's supposed to be training his men. That's something that came up earlier. That's a bit different than uh, in the show. Yeah, it's in true. John Bronn is very easily distracted by pretty girls on the show. And it just yeah. doesn't seem to matter because he's just so badass that no, he can do no wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this Bronn is not quite so badass and not quite so uh, flawless. And he's, so he's badass in a way because he worked for it. Yeah, this, this is a highly focused, ambitious guy, not a jokey rise by pure talent type guy. <laughs> now, Bronn is talented, but he's also a hard worker. 
the hard work is not as, like Shea says, isn't, isn't really shown on TV. In fact, the opposite, really. So, Braun isn't exactly the kind of character people are going to forget about, but I've hinted before about the idea of Braun being more important than the Braun himself. Back when he was coming on the scene, I pointed this out in part, and I'm going to bring it up again in a different light. The Gold Company is a lot like 10,000 Brauns. And Braun is different than the other sellswords in this scene. He's not getting drunk, like I said. He, he's focused on his goals. And he's serious about them. He, his, this, this level of focus is, is intense. And that's why I see the Golden Company as a bunch of Brauns instead of a bunch of sellswords getting drunk. Be, just because they find out they're going to all be made knights. For one thing, the Golden Company is already full of knights. They're already aiming higher than knighthood and minor you know, wealth. Uh, it's, it, this is, the Golden Company is full of men who want lands and titles and feel that they deserve it. Because to be fair, some of them are actually descendants of houses whose lands they're trying to reclaim. Mm, to, to also be fair, some of them are lying about those claims. But regardless, it's a minor distinction overall. The point is, just like Braun says, they're willing to kill for those knighthoods and lordships and lands, but they're not willing to die for them. And it's that last bit too the they'll never think they'll die for it in a certain light it's very straightforward but in this story of gray we have to be wary of being too black and white right for the most part swords fight for gold and advancement not to loyalty not for loyalty to a house or to a king or queen or country or, or individual but swords can be loyal some of them are decent enough towards the fellows in their own company some of them have loyalty towards you know, their, their fellow company members. Others have families of their own, and they care about those families. So they at least have loyalty to their own family. Some of them. Some of them are crappy to their own family. Some sellswords went far enough with their family and success that they founded a house, right? Littlefinger's grandfather was a sellsword. Littlefinger's grandfather probably would not have died for any lord or king or queen on the planet either. But maybe, maybe Littlefinger's grandfather would have died for his own son or his own grandson. If he knew what kind of man his grandson would turn out to be, maybe not. But <laughs> that's another story. Where I'm going with all this is the long night. That's when we might see some sellswords change their tune a bit. When it's the living versus the dead, even a sellsword might fight without expectation of a reward. Even a sellsword is like, well, neither side is going to pay me in this conflict. But, uh, but it's clear which side I'm fighting for. There is a reward to be had, even if it's not financial. You can advance. You can move up in the world because of your deeds in war. Like, a lot of sellswords will find themselves with an opportunity they've never had before. A chance to win respectability. To be reinvented in a completely unique and unprecedented way. To, to kill, to help fight the army of the dead when it was most needed. That's heroic. No matter what you've done in your past, if you fight for humanity when it's needed most, that's going to go a long way. A you know, long way. Makes me wonder, depending on the order of things, is Danny going to have a bunch of golden army, golden company people in her army? Yeah, maybe. After Fagon dies, they got to do dies, something. he dies, they've all got to go. They got to they sign up, up with north. some leader. Maybe they'll just flee. They'll just go, ah, we're getting the heck out of here. Yeah, we're going to Essos. Yeah, and it's funny, in, in the TV show... Euron brings the Golden Company over. Yeah. But in the books, they might be like, we need someone to tag us back. Yeah. <laughs> We're leaving. <laughs> so I'm not a huge Bronn fan. I don't dislike him either, but I'm seeing him in a new light because of what, like I said, what he represents. There's going to be a lot of sellswords in Westeros, more than there were, well, 
I guess technically they're already here. They're already in Westeros, but they haven't done much yet. But I'm curious what to see, see what they're going to do. To be fair, in Bronn's case, he's no longer a sellsword as things stand now. He's already Lord Stokeworth. Maybe he'll lead the Stokeworth warriors into the fray, uh, you know, or he'll hide behind his walls and just hope humanity wins without him. He'd be remembered as a coward if he did so. And um, I don't know if Bronn cares about that, but uh, he might. So very interesting. For now, Bronn is quite useful. He can be counted on, for Tyrion's case, uh, to do dirty work like burning down the settlements along the city walls, which is something that uh, is kind of unfortunate. Tyrion continues to do things that make him unpopular, but they're necessary, I suppose. Quote, The black-haired sellsword turned his head, considering the task. Them is own all this won't like that much. I never imagined they would. So be it. They'll have something else to curse the evil monkey demon for. Yeah, so it's again, Tyrion again just kind of shrugs. He's like, well, they already hate me. What's what's them hating me a little more? Now, he's he. we've talked before about how he goes too far with this. There is an opportunity for him to win them over. And he does sort of find one way to, maybe not win them over, but to keep them from siding with Stannis, which is by using some pretty clever, but also straightforward propaganda with regards to religion. Saying, hey, Stannis wants to burn the Sept. Stannis wants to burn the Sept. He's, he's against the gods, blah, blah, blah. That works pretty well. Uh, a lot of believers are going to, would be wary of following a king that worships R'hllor. That's definitely a turnoff. Now, why is Tyrion having all these having all these settlements burned? Well, it's because houses built up against a city wall provide kind of like a ladder. You can climb up this ramshackle barn and get over the wall, kind of like how the wildlings use trees that haven't been cut back to get a, a huge uh, head start on climbing the wall in A Storm of Swords when John is with uh, all the, that group of, of Grit and Steer. So you can understand the strategy behind why Tyrion is doing this. It makes sense. But it's, again, a, a thing that makes him hated. And he does other things that make him hated, like he confiscates ships from some Bravosi merchants. That's not good because those Bravosi merchants are going to go spread the word about him in other cities, which is going to lead to things <laughs> like the play yeah, and Bravo's exactly. where they make fun of him. I never connected that actually, <laughs> that he pissed them off. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't connect that till just now. Like I'm, as I'm saying it, I'm like, wait, there's that play. It's not in our notes. It just kind of came to me. Here. So that's pretty cool. Cause it was specifically Bravosi. <laughs> it wasn't just merchants from other. I wonder, I wonder what Ned did to them. <laughs> <laughs> and then they just like making fun of him. <laughs> Another thing with this chapter that relates to this is the Antlermen, who are a group of not commoners, who are middle class or upper class, but non-nobility, who decide to side with Stannis because they expect he's going to win. And they call themselves the Antlermen. Master Armor Solorian is one of them. And of course, it's funny that Tyrion thinks of the evil monkey demon that they think of him as, and it's, it's Solorian who offered to make him a demon helmet, which... Tyrion kind of was probably thinking of that with with a side eye in mind, like, demon, did you really, is that really what your choice of words there, bro? (laughs) And of course, that merchant or that master armor is one of the ones that is joining the Antlermen. This is a good example of people switching sides, not just because they want to be on the winning side, but because they don't like the side they're on. They have personal issue with it. Silurian was insulted by the task of making the chain. Uh, that Tyrion asked for or commanded. And as well, men like this have a high opinion of themselves. They think that switching sides will be crucial. 
And to be fair to them, it may have been. Their plan was to open one of the gates when the battle started. And that would have been huge. Letting, you know, there's seven gates. It really only takes one of them falling for Stannis' men to flood the city. Again, as important as it was to do this, it also shows you the power of Varys. Varys saying, look, if Varys hadn't given them that info, it would have been a big deal. Yet, there's a lot of other big deal type info that Varys is holding back. So we talked about this theme of out of place, people going to unfamiliar places, you know, Theon going into the woods, Theon being at Winterfell, Danny going to the House of the Undying, uh, lots of these little things like John going beyond the wall, unfamiliar, creepy places like that. And well, here, right here, we have Tyrion hearing about Bran and uh, about Winterfell. He hasn't yet heard that Bran and Rickon are dead. He's only heard that Winterfell has been taken and it gives him pause. And it's a great quote. Here it is. It was the North. I never felt so out of place as I did when I walked there. So much an unwelcome intruder. He wondered if the Greyjoys would feel it too. The castle might well be theirs, but never that gods would. Not in a year or 10 or 50. Oh, they felt it all right. (laughs) The end was perhaps a bit too used to it. Well, that's the next chapter too. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But... Yeah, <laughs> Theon definitely felt it all right, <laughs> and more. So let's talk about Helene in the wildfire. He is way, way ahead of schedule, and he refers, like so many characters are doing during this stretch of chapters, to dragons as the likely reason. Quote, Oh, pardon. I was just remembering something old wisdom Polishor told me once when I was an acolyte. I'd asked him why so many of our spells seemed, well, not as effectual as the scrolls would have us believe. And he said it was because magic had begun to go out of the world the day the last dragon died. Again, maybe the last dragon died because magic was going out of the world. And it needed those magical forces to keep it alive. We don't know. I'm not weighing in with my opinion. I'm just pointing to the evidence as it is presented to us where we see it. Because we're, well, that's how we try to get to the answer. It does further point to what we've been talking about, which is kind of the ebb and flow of magic. Not that there is a set point. Yeah, I agree. And that's really neat because he's, this is, that's really, that's alluded to here. He says, well, it looks like the books say this should work better. And it doesn't. Why is that? But it works. It does work is what yeah. he's saying. Some of them work to a certain extent, but not as good, not as well as they should. So again, it just kind of slowly eked out of the world and yeah. then slowly like slid back in. So th- that's really interesting. Uh, the, the And then of course, this Wisdom Polliter first says, well, we found some more jars under the dragon pit. And great catch by Nina. She points out what a red flag this is. I disagree with calling it a red flag. I would call it a green flag. (laughs) But otherwise, I agree that the fact that the dragon pit is very, very far from the Alchemist's Guild is is a flag that this was part of the planting of wildfire by Ares's men. And, and, you know, to set up the city to get blown. So good catch, because if it was just like some storehouse they had forgotten about nearby, uh, well, that would make sense. But this is nowhere near their headquarters, which implies it was put there for a different purpose, not for storage. We get, uh, of course, all this wildfire talk. It's high time that Arian Brightflame got his mention. And of course, he is mentioned because a, a random patron of a sex worker drank this wildfire thinking it was wine and that's reminds Tyrion of Arian Bright, Brightflame who did the same thing also while drunk and 
That's interesting because Arian Brightflame's death is why they needed to call, uh, a big part of why they needed to call a great council. And that great council led by Bloodraven elected Egg to the throne. And that's relevant, very relevant, because if the TV show is accurate, Tyrion, the man thinking of Arian Brightflame here, is going to be the man leading the great council at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. The same council that will choose Bran, the mentor or the mentee of Bloodraven. It all comes together. So Tyrion reminds himself that he needs to call Sir Jaslyn Bywater, Lord of Jaslyn Bywater, because Jaslyn has been serving him so well, so effectively, so honestly, uh, that he deserved a reward, especially in the case of this whole Tommen, getting Tommen out of the city business, which Jaslyn did a great job with. However, Jaslyn also... Oh, it's so sad. He has given such good advice, such poignant, well-placed, well-intentioned and honest advice that it's too perfect this time. He warns them. He says, Tyrion, my man, these gold cloaks are not trustworthy. If they start running, they're all going to start running. And that's obviously not going to be good. And of course, what happens in the battle? Cersei orders Joffrey to retreat. The gold cloaks see that they run, and exactly what Lord Jaslyn predicts happens. Sadly, Jaslyn himself is the man who tries to stop them fleeing and is killed for it. So he's basically not only foreshadowing the gold cloaks fleeing, but his own death in the process. And be given, that's so perfect to me in a sad way, like I said, because he's been telling Tyrion everything that's going to happen. <laughs> and so, and he's, we, I, we, before we talk about how he's, metaphorically, symbolically, has lost his right hand in that ancient tradition of losing a body part to gain knowledge. So the fact that he's such a blunt, honest guy fits really well with that, the symbolism of him sacrificing a, a key body part for knowledge. Well, it's just so mean for George to have that knowledge come back to bite him in his own butt like that. But yep, that's the story we're dealing with, y'all. Balon Swan and Osmond Kettleblack are both added to the King's Guard. Tyrion thinks very cynically and accurately about Osmond Kettleblack, but doesn't know the full picture. And Balon Swan, of course, we talked much earlier about how Varys did a few things to try to prevent Balon Swan to being named the Kingsguard, but there's only so much he could do. And indeed, the reason he doesn't want Balon Swan on the Kingsguard is the same reason Tyrion thinks he's a good choice. He's a great knight, an honorable guy, a, a wonderful fighter dependable, etc. That's what Varys doesn't want Cersei to have on her son's Kingsguard. But Osmond Kettleblack, he doesn't mind that because Osmond Kettleblack is scum. <laughs> so that's just fine as far as, uh, so Varys, if Varys were thinking about these two appointments, he would have the exact opposite opinion. He'd be like, Balon Swan, damn it, I was trying to stop that. But Osmond Kettleblack, good choice, good choice. That's going to screw you. And that's exactly what I want to see. Joe Buckley brings up a good point in relation to the not dying for knighthood, but being willing to kill for it. He says, how many characters throughout the series can we attribute this attitude to? It isn't just swords; It isn't just knights. It's, heck, a huge portion of everyone. And that's a cynical but accurate <laughs> take, I think. Of me, too. Yeah, right? <laughs> you wouldn't kill for a knighthood. I mean, die for a knighthood. Yeah, I'd kill, kill for, for it. it. Yeah, I who, would kill for it. Who, who would you kill for? You. Oh, all right. Tough but fair. Good thing. Uh, I, good thing. Killing me doesn't get you a knighthood. But no, it's a very hard <laughs> sell to say. Yeah, I mean, like you said, if they have a family, yeah, if they have someone to inherit the thing that they won. But if not, it's just 
there's no point. Yeah. There's no point in fighting <laughs> for that knighthood if, if you don't get anything in later. <laughs> <laughs> so it's nice to have the dot connection of Ares. Uh, oh, could you, could you not think of anyone? What? Could you think of anyone who is willing to die for their knighthood? Brienne. <laughs> oh, good, good call. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. As usual, the only true knight. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's probably a couple others. Yeah. But, yeah, but you're right. She's you know. a good one. She wants to be a knight. And she would kill, not for it exactly, but she will to, you know, she will kill. I feel like Barristan might die. have died for knighthood. You okay. Know? Yeah. Maybe someone like Arthur Dane, maybe. But hmm. yeah, but maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I love your, your quick answer of Brienne, though. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> Just boom, Brienne. <laughs> That's been a constant theme for us. Like Sandor wouldn't die for it, but he's, you know. He wouldn't kill for it either. He doesn't care about being a knight. He would kill because he likes killing, but not to be a knight. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I wouldn't kill for that. I would kill. I have no qualms with killing, but I don't want a knight. So yeah, nice, well-framed uh, pair of chapters here with da- Daenerys seeing her father with the wildfire commanding the caches to be, you know, lit and then finding one of the caches in this next chapter. Joe points out something that I didn't catch either. And I think he might be right. I'm not sure about this, but I'll read what he says. I guess Tyrion didn't come up with the wildfire boat strategy until this moment when he's told they have magically thousands of jars more than they were expecting. Up to this point, he was just thinking of doing the catapulting the jars off the castle walls part. I think he might be right because he he certainly talks about, he trains them to do that. He has all this, this uh, well thought through plan to have Jocelyn, you know, see, remove the guys who aren't good at keeping the jars stable. Anyone who drops a jar is removed from duty, all that stuff. No talk about the stuffing these hulks with wildfire. So I think that's a good point. I think Tyrion adjusted his plans when he realized the supply of wildfire was greater than he uh, expected, much greater than he expected. Joe makes a similar point that we did about uh, the Stannis and R'hllor and how Tyrion finally gets a win with the small folk there. But really, he should have, he needed more. <laughs> so as I said at the beginning, Shaga and his men don't go back to the Vale. They like it in the Kingswood, despite all the burning. So when Tyrion eventually returns to Westeros, probably at the head of or beside Danny's army, he might be like, hey, we have allies here already. I just need to contact them. So he might find a way to send some scouts into the Kingswood, find his old buddy Shaga, and have Shaga hook up with him again. And we'll see what happens with that. Because I want Shaga to come back. Danny's going to need some comic relief too. <laughs> with that, strong Bellwuss is not enough. <laughs> Super chat from Azriel from Canada. Thank you for that. And with that, we move on. Theon 4, the one where Theon might be a Kinslayer, a.k.a. Summer and Shaggy decoy direwolf duo. The Kinslayer part has many meanings. He's certainly doing violence to people who grew up with. They're not literally kin, but, you know, it's still offensive to normal human sensibilities. And the younger of the two Miller's children might be his. So that's the he might be a Kinslayer part. Another feature of this chapter is how well it sets up John 6, which immediately follows it. And not only does it set up John 6, but the, the, the issues raised in both of these chapters, the plot points continue to carry forward all the way to now. They're still mattering. They're still hanging over the characters now. Here's the opening quote. One moment he was asleep, the next awake. Troubled sleep, Theon? Can't imagine why. And speaking of 
echoing through the later chapters, Theon's not exactly going to get better at sleeping. His subconscious is barking at him. Not only is he doing wrong, but he's making strategic mistakes. Pride and ego are ruling him, and it should be strategy and pragmatism. Even if you take away the ethics of what he's doing, he's going about it all wrong. And the crux of Theon's pathos is really well explained or alluded to here in this very short phrase, or short passage, rather. All's well, Greyjoy. Hear the quiet? You ought to be drunk with joy. You took Winterfell with fewer than 30 men, a feat to sing of. Yeah, he has to convince himself that he should be drunk with joy. And he's clearly not. It is a feat to sing of, if you're smart enough to do what your sister will say in your next chapter, i.e. burn the place and take the princes back to Pike as hostages and kill everyone else. Especially because you're going to get blamed for all that anyway. (laughs) He's going to get blamed for burning the place and and all that and killing all the innocents. Even though we know most of that is Ramsay's doing, but Theon is not smart enough to do that. Nor is he smart enough to realize how his brutal controlling measures and shoddy justice are traumatizing to himself as much as everybody else or almost as much as everybody else. But they're also counterproductive. So that's what makes this cruelty so tragic. It doesn't even work. It's stupid. It has limited success. So it is a feat to sing of if you're someone like Dagmar Clefjaw or even lesser Ironborn Reavers. It's pretty clever, the actual plan, just not the execution and the stuff that comes after. Theon, bottom line is, you're not a Reaver. And even if you were, conquering the place you grew up with, killing people you were friendly with, man, even the fiercest adherence to the old way might prefer to pay the iron price just about anywhere else. I mean, why attack the castle you grew up in as, you know, that's just, even that is beyond, I think, what most Reavers would do. You know, like they would go elsewhere. It takes a hard man to hunt a boy whose life you saved. And Theon, you are not that for certain. You are pretending to be that. You are trying to cast yourself as something you're not. You are miscast in that role. Something we're going to see quite a lot of in John 6, as I said, the next connecting point to this one, is the impact of Ned Stark's upbringing. Honor and duty were imparted, sure, but also mercy. Mercy is super important here. And Theon specifically thinks of it, though he does not notably think of Ned Stark specifically alongside it. Quote, Mercy, thought Theon. Theon? Theon. Mercy, thought Theon, as Lewin dropped back. There is a bloody trap. Too much and they call you weak. Too little and you're monstrous. Yet the maester had given him good counsel, he knew. His father thought only in terms of conquest. But what good was it to take a kingdom if you could not hold it? Force and fear could only carry you so far. Yeah, he's so close. (laughs) You said, blah, the impact of Ned Stark's upbringing. Honor and duty, sure, but also mercy. (laughs) I just had to bring up mercy because that's Arya's name. Yeah, mercy, yeah. <laughs> that was all just Ned. And honor is Jamie's horse. I don't know yeah, who duty I don't, is, Yeah, I don't know about all that, but either way, yeah, I can't help but see mercy in Ned. <laughs> he's, thinking of what his, he's thinking of what his father's mistakes, and he's right, but he should also be thinking of his foster father and how Ned viewed mercy. So the Theon is, is pretty close to getting it right here, but he doesn't, doesn't at all. He understands the lesson when thinking of ma- the maester giving him a good counsel. But he fails when it comes to applying the lesson. What good is it to take a kingdom if you could not hold it? Exactly. 
exactly. You can't hold Winterfell. <laughs> so, and force and fear can only carry you so far. Exactly. You said it yourself, Theon, but you didn't listen. Theon thinks of things he should have done, like those, but also he thinks how he should have killed the direwolves immediately. Ramsay would not have made that mistake, nor Dagmar Clefjaw, for example. Even Ned Stark saw killing the direwolves as necessary until he was moved by mercy and an appeal to the gods, which the gods and mercy are supposed to be a related concept. Theon, however, has no gods, not really. He gives lip service to the drowned god, but in his, in his mind, he doesn't have awe or reverence for the drowned god or the old gods. Maybe a little bit of fear, but mostly it's just dutiful. It's like Stannis with Solise. He just does the bare minimum. He drowns Septon Shale and Benford Tallhart, but it's not a holy event for him. It's just what needs to be done. It's also stupid. Again, it's stupid. He's throwing Septon Shale in the well. Ever hear of a trough, Theon? Just drown him in a trough. You just ruined that well for no good reason. Even Euron, who is a psycho, had a man drown in a barrel, you know? <laughs> he didn't waste he didn't waste too much there. And I imagine there's a few barrels lying around Winterfell. You're really just wasteful, Theon, wasteful. And speaking of wasteful, this reminds me of what we mentioned in Brand 6, right? Mick, Theon allowing Micken to be killed. And he, his narcissism is just so over the top here. It's, 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 it's so hard to take sometimes. While well, he, he's blaming it on Mick and running his mouth. You, Theon, you're in charge. You could have told your men to leave him be because you recognize how important Smiths are. Meanwhile, Theon expects gratitude because I could have been crueler. <laughs> My men are vicious, but without me to keep them in line, they'd be even more vicious. So you owe me thanks. He gets angry when they don't love him. And he's paired, and that's paired with an, inabil- an inability to see himself as the bad guy, no matter what. And that is narcissism. He can never look at himself and see mistakes or shortcomings. Anytime that instinct rises in him, he argues it away. He finds a way to justify it or to blame it on someone else. So as awful as our POV vessel is here, as, as tough as it is to take Theon's narcissism, there is a lot of fascinating things happening here. The, the interplay of culture and the supernatural is really peaking in this chapter in ways that I think are pretty darn subtle. So let's get into it because I, I, I really think this is interesting. As Balon is trying to bring back the old way of the Ironborn, we should be mindful of how well that lines up with and sometimes enhances what we're seeing in so many of these arcs. That which the Comet heralds at the start of this book, right? The rise and the return of the supernatural. The trees have eyes again. The dragons are back. People are dancing with shadows or even birthing them. The dead are walking. But you see the difference there? The old way of the Ironborn is not overtly supernatural. Perhaps it's rooted in some you know, ancient Cthulhu-esque being or beings or what have you, the deep ones or whatever. But reaving as a way of life, as a religion, that's a cultural thing. The drowning turns out to be a CPR thing. Most of Ironborn religion is not supernatural at all. So the Much point like is the seven, right? Exactly. And the, the point is, though, this is happening all over as well, right? Sure, powerful ancient magics are returning, but so are ancient traditions. Some of which are far more terrifying than even Miri dancing with shadows or Mel birthing them or even blood sacrifice. This bit of world building dropped in this chapter is really subtle the first time through, but it's exactly what I'm talking about: old traditions people thought were gone, bad traditions that are coming back. Quote. 
Lord Bolton used to say, a naked man has few secrets, but a flayed man's got none. The flayed man was the sigil of House Bolton. Theon knew, ages past, certain of their lords had gone so far as to cloak themselves in the skins of dead enemies. A number of Starks had ended thus, supposedly all that had stopped a thousand years ago when the Boltons had bent their knees to Winterfell. Or so they say, but old ways die hard, as well I know. There will be no flaying in the north so long as I rule in Winterfell, Theon said loudly. Good job on the wording there, Theon. You are going to get flayed, but at least you weren't wrong. He said no flaying as long as I rule in Winterfell. <laughs> Technically, he gets flayed after he ceases to rule there. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, so you can see my point there. The Bolton flaying tradition has come back, along with a lot of these other cultural traditions. Human like bad ones like human sacrifice and things like that. Uh, scary ones like skin changing, which are cultural and supernatural. George does it so well. This this blending. Just as, as an aside, the old ways die hard, as well I know. Die the show hard. the show Vikings, you know, has oh. has has a spin-off announced called Vikings Valhalla. Yeah. But it really should be called Vikings Die Hard because the writer, the head writer for the show is Jeb Stewart, who wrote Die Hard. Oh. <laughs> so that could be interesting. Little aside there, nothing to do with the Song of Ice and Fire, but I'm a fan of Vikings. And hey, we're talking about Ironborn. That's the... And it's Christmas holiday time. <laughs> die, die Hard is relevant. <laughs> I didn't expect to make you laugh so much with just a simple statement of fact. <laughs> hey, facts can be funny. So, yeah, again, George does the blending of supernatural and cultural so well, and it can be difficult to tell the two apart sometimes. Quote. The histories say the Cranach men grew close to the children of the forest in the days when the green seers tried to bring the hammer of the waters down upon the neck. It may be that they have secret knowledge. Suddenly the wood seemed a deal darker than it had a moment before, as if a cloud had passed before the sun. It was one thing to have some fool boy spouting folly, but maesters were supposed to be wise. Yeah, so if we take this idea really far, we get into the possibility that there's more than a cultural connection between the children of the forest and the Kranigmen, i.e. maybe a blood connection. This is a compelling idea, but is well short on proof. But the cultural connection seems undeniable. And so the idea of secret knowledge is definitely in play. It may seem odd for Maester Lewin, of all people, to be the one bringing this up, but it is rooted in the known. He's not referring to anything overtly magical here. He's re referring to facts about the Kranigmen and that those facts line up with what's known about the children of the forest. So he's not saying this is definitely true, but there's, an, there's enough evidence to suggest it might be. But we should also consider that he might be afraid too. I mean, he's out there in the dark chasing direwolves, and also he's been attacked by Shaggy Dog in the dark before. So that may be in the back of his mind. Yeah, I think both of those are enough reasons, but I like to think that he's also just kind of screwing with Theon. Yeah, I was going to say that too. I think that he wants Theon to give up the hunt because he doesn't want Theon to find the kids, but also he knows that they're, you know, stumbling around in the dark. And yeah. it's true that stumbling around in the dark on horseback is a bad idea. Yeah, so there's many factors, I think, that go into him saying such a simple statement. Yeah, and it, he wants Theon, he's basically giving the impression with, and that quote sells it really well that the hunters could quickly become the hunted here. And no doubt that, if you think really far back, try to put yourself in the mind of an ancient first man or woman, <laughs> the times when the first men were warring with the children 
think about how scary the woods at night must have been. They'd be utterly terrifying. And the deeper and darker and more untamed the woods, the worse that feeling would be. And Westeros in ancient times was mostly forest. (laughs) So, whoa, Westeros was creepy back in the day. The same concept about the hunters becoming the hunted is true with the direwolf. They're an ancient creature whom we know to be supernatural. And a lot of mistakes are made in thinking about how they'll behave here. The assumption at several points by multiple people, including people who know dogs and wolves very well, is that they'll essentially behave like other wolves or dogs. And that is a mistake. The dire wolves do not behave like other wolves or dogs. It's pointed out that the dire wolves would never leave the boys for so long. And Theon agrees with that assessment, although it's wrong. And while it may be for supernatural reasons, i.e. maybe Bran is controlling Summer to have them run away, it, it's not suggested that that's what happened. It's, it's suggested that they just obeyed a command that Theon and the others didn't think was a possible command to issue to dire wolves. Later, Ramsay slash Reek says he's never heard of wolves running up a stream bed for miles at a time. But again, we know it's entirely possible because these are not normal wolves. And again, Theon gets there. He thinks the problem through, but just takes the wrong path. He realizes that, well, quote. I did. Yet Theon wondered. These beasts were not as other wolves. But he continued to be ruled by pride. That was the right instinct. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we're thinking about this wrong. Maybe the dire wolves are going to behave differently. Maybe there's something else about them. But he can't say that or bring himself to say that because it, it's, a, it's a sign of doubt. And he's so, he, he feels so raw with how bad he looks right now that he can't stomach the idea of looking even worse or looking, showing even more doubt. So Theon does eventually give up because he's, given an out. It's an awful, tragic out. Ramsey being that devil on his shoulder suggests fake kids, fake, uh, fake Brandon Rickon and killing them. And you know, you know what happens. And what's really dark too, is that Ramsey clearly had this plan from the beginning because he brought Brandon Rickon's clothing and wolf pin. So he had this idea from before they left Winterfell. He knew that it would probably go this way. So then this one is easy for Ramsey to, to figure out. Ramsey is crude with his understanding of psychology. He's brutal with his manipulations. He's not super clever with it, but he is pretty good at it because he's got the willingness. He's, you know, he's got that lack of humanity in him that most people would, it would give people pause to do the kind of things that he does. So Ramsey recognizes Theon's embarrassment and pride here and knows that Theon does not want to be seen that way. And it's very easy for Ramsey to talk him into doing this evil because Theon values how he's seen in terms of manliness more than he cares about whether he's evil. So a pattern we've been pointing to in Theon's chapters is how often he feels things, how often he experiences his emotions in his mouth or his gut. Tightness, queasiness, nausea, all these things. They, it's, a, it's a common refrain for him, and it comes up here again big time as he's realizing just how impossible this situation has become for him. Quote, Theon could taste bile at the back of his throat, and his stomach was a nest of, sh- of snakes twining and snapping at each other. When Theon names which men are coming with him to kill the innocent boys and their parents, he's killing these men too. Quote, Gelmar, he said, wondering who he could trust. None of them. Agar, Red Nose, 
So he sends the rest home, but those three, Galmar, Agar, and Rednose, are the ones about to have fatal accidents so that they don't reveal that Bran and Rickon are actually alive. Three deaths Theon will blame on insurgents within the castle, which then leads to him punishing more people for being insurgents, even though they didn't do anything. So he's having people executed on false premises all to conceal the murders of boys that weren't to blame at all. And he murders his own men to keep that a secret. It's really, really bad. And well, with Ramsey leading him, (laughs) of course, you're going to go to bad places. And that's what makes it all even worse is that all of this is effectively Theon doing Ramsey's dirty work. He Ramsey is going to be the one to really benefit from all this. Ramsey's going to benefit from the unrest within the castle. And Ramsey's going to benefit even more so from the idea that Brandon Rickon are dead. After all, he's the one that gets Winterfell. He's the one that becomes Prince of Winterfell. And Theon gets to be Reek. Last chapter, Tyrion was talking about the Greyjoys and Theon not being able to feel at home in Winterfell. And this chapter begins with Theon feeling cold in Ned's traditionally warm bedroom. Yeah. Talk about being rejected by the territory, by the bed, the trees, the people, everything. Joe does not agree with the possibility that the one of the Miller's boys is, is uh, Theon's kid. Uh, he prefers the idea that Theon's cursed life is his own doing, his own actions. I, I think that's a good take. I think it's a, it's a fair take. The theory comes from the idea that Theon has said, hey, I've slept with that Miller before, and Theon has been with Ned Stark uh, at Winterfell for about seven, wait, ten wait, years. Wait, wait, you mean he's, I think you mean he slept with the Miller's wife, or maybe there's more to the story than I think? What did I say? He slept with that Miller before. Oh. <laughs> well, he may have, but that wouldn't bear children. <laughs> so Theon is certainly, the, Miller, the younger Miller's son is, is about the same age as, as Rickon. So he would only be about four or five, which means that Theon, if he had had sex with the Miller when he was 15, which is certainly a reasonable age for him to have done that, then yeah, this could be his kid. There is very little to directly suggest it. It's just possible. It yeah, I fits, think, but the, there's... The reason people like it is because they want Theon to be able to have an heir or someone to rule the Iron Islands. Yeah. Is a lot of the reasoning behind it. But there's a couple issues there and that one, you have to prove that. Yeah. And two, I don't think it's that important to have that dealt with. Yeah. Asha could still have kids. That's very unlikely because she's going to die, you would think. But anyways, just if people were wondering why people are hung up on that. Yeah. Theon can't have kids anymore. (laughs) Good call. (laughs) So the showrunners get a rare reprieve here. Check this quote. Osha. He had suspected her from the moment he saw that second cup. I should have known better than to trust that one. She's as unnatural as Asha. Even their names sound alike. Oh. Oh. <laughs> okay, well, it's a minor reprieve. <laughs> <laughs> More dot connecting. Compare Theon's take on blowing the horn with direwolves coming at you to uh, yelling at Urzan. When would you have blown the horn? The same scenario in John 6, next chapter, which we'll do in more detail there. But... I want to point now to how Theon gives orders that somewhat ignore his own advice here. He just, again, isn't thinking things through. Quote. Give a blast on the horn when you pick up the trail. Two blasts if you catch sight of the beasts themselves. Yeah, so you catch sight of the direwolves and you have time to blow your horn? Um, yeah. Hmm. How many blasts if they come up on us with an army of children of the forest? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Mm. Referring maybe to children appearing later in the series or maybe Nymeria's pack of wolves. Um, real quick. Yeah. Uh, I can't believe you didn't correct me on this, but Will Mossy did. I was referring, I was referring to Captain's daughter's child when I was thinking about. Well, no, I thought you were relating it to that. I, I, I like, I should have been, I should have been relating it to that, but I did not make that clear. Okay. And like, it was just very unclear enough that he had to clarify. I did make that assumption. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So a really terrible dot to connect here is that Kyra, the girl that Theon's with right at the beginning of the chapter is going to be hunted by Ramsay and the dogs later. Yikes. So, and he thinks that, Theon thinks how he's done her this favor of bringing her out of the winter town where she's never been inside a castle and she's just lived in the tavern her whole life. Well, I definitely think it would have been better if she stayed there. Wex shows his cleverness in this chapter by realizing that there's no heavy footprints from Hodor. A cleverness that comes up again later when he appears at White Harbor, hidden by Lord Manderley. His cleverness is also what enables him to get to White Harbor. He hides up in a, a tree in the Godswood. A great place to hide, really. The Boltons are awful, but even the Boltons wouldn't probably torch a whole godswood. They're still northerners. And they're also just not going to bother searching all those trees. Climbing them and doing that, that's just a big nope for them. So, Wex, smart kid, smart kid. Curious what's going to happen to him later. And we move on to our last chapter of the day. John 6, the one where John kills Orel, aka the one where John doesn't kill Igrit. But also, it's the one with this alternative version of the Bale the Bard story. Now, John's heard a Bale the Bard story when he grew up, but this version is much different than the one he heard as a child. And it's the important version of the Bale the Bard story. Bale the Bard? Bale the Bard story, that is. And really, the Bale the Bard story is the biggest part of this chapter. It's one of the biggest parts of John's entire arc. And it starts off with this nice quote. They could see the fire in the night glimmering against the side of the mountain like a fallen star. Like a fallen star. People, mm. you can't, can't help but think of House Dane when you see fallen star, Yeah, right? yeah you can't. <laughs> the mountains. Yeah. And fire in the night. Well, and lying beside that fire is a girl kissed by fire. Mm. John suffers through the cold, but thinks that the wondrous sights make it worthwhile. That It's easy to miss the significance of this, i.e. John's great love for the untouched icy wilderness because that may be where he lives out his days when all the wars are over. It's not just sightseeing for him. It might be groundwork for where he's going to live when it's all over. Groundwork? Groundwork, hey. And it's, it's, it, and good for him that he likes it, because, you know, it would suck to be exiled to a place you don't like. But if you're exiled to a place you like, it eh, wouldn't seem like exile. So for John, eh, it could be worse. But hey, you got to get stabbed before then, so there's some, and may have to stab your lover. So there's some bad things coming for you. The climb here, hmm, it's a, I, as a climber myself, uh, I have some pedantic things I would say about this climb, but I won't because who cares? <laughs> it's a fun scene. <laughs> I it's, think it's pretty much, you don't have to climb, I think, Aziz, to get the issues here <laughs> for what it's worth. I think anyone can be like, this is just crazy. Yeah, John probably hasn't climbed enough to be able to do this. No, I don't think he's climbed <laughs> enough. It's like one of the most difficult situations to climb. It's, yeah. it's way, way less ridiculous than John climbing the wall with a grit on TV, though. That is <laughs> absurd. Like, you cannot do that without training. <laughs> like, your muscles would die so quickly. Anyway, I said I wouldn't do it, and there I am doing I, it. I got you started you on did. it. You got me started. There's also a literary connection here. As Joe pointed out, John uh, climbing, giving uh, George uh, an easy reason to have the reader think of Bran who, as we pointed out, as I said, Joe pointed out, loved to climb and how that impacted Summer trying to climb and how this all kind of 
swerves together because in John's next chapter, he and Bran are going to have that shared werewood slash wolf dream. And uh, so it's important to kind of connect John and Bran in advance of, of that bigger connection. Stone Snake is a really cool character. I like him a lot. I wonder if he's alive. It's been a, a longstanding theory of maybe he survived, maybe he didn't. And uh, we wonder about that. Just a veteran ranger that knows what's up. Very skilled, very brave. But the big part of this chapter, really, the grit and the Bale of the Bard story, that is, is huge. It's really, really huge. It it's, relates back to Theon, the last Theon chapter with people getting all the way from people getting flayed to mixed background to cultural connections to fish out of water to us all being one race ultimately humanity is humanity there's some pretty heavy symbolism in john's first kill here though as usual george doesn't let us in on the clues that reveal this until later he leaves these hidden gems for us rereaders and we love him for that in a world where magic has a cost where only death can pay for life where brand may have consumed his own friend to help awaken his green seer abilities, John, who is not yet revealed to be a skin changer, kills a man. It's his first kill, who is also not revealed to be a skin changer yet. In Orel's case, he's a known skin changer, but the reader doesn't learn that till later. And in John's case, the skin changer abilities awaken, like I just said, in his next chapter. So upon reread, if you're really thinking symbolically here, the idea that John's first ever kill was a skin changer. Well, that's not a coincidence by George. It's almost as if John has killed a skin changer to awaken his own abilities. Not really, not literally, but symbolically. It's no accident. I mean, George writing that that way. Your first kill is going to be a skin changer. And skin changers are very rare. Uh, Major moment of perspective here when he's talking to Igrit. And Corin, later and now, notably doesn't denigrate the wildlings. He treats them as a serious enemy. And, it, and more importantly, just as human as anyone else. The wildlings are just as quick and brave and smart and clever as us, etc. And the, the, it, it's all in the way your standing line is massive. It's huge. It's, it's framed as the wildlings are separate from the north because of the wall. But there was a time at which there was no wall. And they're all humans. They all were one people at one time. And that can be true again. Speaking of, uh, and, and that's really huge. Speaking of becoming one again, that's obviously what comes with John later. He and Stannis push the idea of the wildlings rejoining the kingdom, not because it's the right thing to do for noble reasons, but because it's necessary, because we need them to help fight the dead. We need every man we can get, every woman we can get. And we certainly don't need them dying on the other side of the wall, becoming a soldier for the enemy. And this, there's so much pathos in that. The idea that John is going to later, when he pardons Egret, it's, it's groundwork for him pardoning all the wildlings later. He's seen them firsthand. Without this firsthand human experience, he may not have this perspective. What Corrin tells him might not sink in. But he lives it. He lives with the grit. He lives with the wildlings. And that's huge. It's also very telling from a cultural perspective. Yes, there's differences between the wildlings and the northerners. And as I, much as I harp on how much they have in common, the differences are pretty substantial too. The wildling slash kneeler cultural divide is pretty big. 
So is the idea of bastardy. The wildlings don't seem to care about that so much. Not as much, not nearly as much. And, but what they do care about, what they care about more than the South, more than even John, who has seen the dead walk, it's the others. That's what's driving so much of this. Speaking of, you know, things waking up like John's abilities, there's subtle clues to what Grit has seen. Grit flinches at the name of John Snow, but not because of the bastard part. It's because of the idea that you would be named after a force of nature that has caused so much harm and destruction, especially right now, especially that it's the symbol of the others is a rough name to have. So John learns a lot by not killing Ygritte. And though Aurel would never have been his friend, he could have learned a lot from another skin changer. Like having advice from a skin changer would clearly benefit John right now. The kinds of things George teaches us by giving us a Veramir chapter, the stuff he's teaching the reader isn't imparted to John. John maybe will learn that through other means, but right now he's on his own. That Veramir chapter teaches us things like how Orel lived on in the Eagle after John killed him and how Orel's hate lived on in the Eagle. Maybe sort of like how Bran's instinct to climb was present in summer. Although Bran is not dead, it's a similar concept. And that hatred from the Eagle living on is how uh, or why the eagle came for ghost. Certainly the eagle relished the deaths of Corin and his men, relished the chasing of them and revealing their locations repeatedly. But Egret doesn't hate John, not even a little. And John doesn't hate Egret even a little. He tells her he's a son of Lord Eddard Stark, which doesn't mean much to her, but it's Eddard's influence that saves her life. He was left to kill her twice. He passed the sentence, but could not swing the sword. And if you recall, that's covered in Ned's words. Chapter one, if you cannot take their life after hearing their final words, maybe they don't deserve to die. Ned, uh, John had the right of it. And Corin points out later that he agreed with John, at least as far as Ygritte not being a danger. Quote, He was his father's son, wasn't he? Wasn't he? <laughs> a lot of meanings there. Well, no, you're not literally Ned Stark's son, but you are his son in terms of behavior and influence and trying and the man you most want to be like, the man you most look up to, the man you most embody, absolutely Ned Stark. And so, yeah, this is he's thinking that by not killing a grit, he's going against what his father would do, but he's wrong. Ned was full of mercy. This is where you learn mercy from. Chapter one, again, yes, he killed the executed the deserter, but he had mercy for the dire wolves. He had mercy for others. He had mercy for... Uh, Liana's son for his sister's child that he had to protect, even though it meant lying to his wife and his best friend and living that lie. He put mercy above honor. He put mercy above duty. It wasn't easy for him because he takes duty and honor very seriously. But like John, or like Ned, John feels the same way. And when he's presented with these things in the real world, he behaves in a similar way to the man who influenced him. Ygritte also, though, is adamant that they burn the bodies of her dead companions, for example. Now, of course, they don't, but they take care of the bodies. Stone Snake throws them over the edge with John's help, and the Shadow Cats eat them. More on that later. But John asks the question that the Night's Watch has been wondering about for a while. At first, we hear how awfully inhospitable the Frost Fangs are. And then we see it firsthand when John goes there. So the question is, quote, why come here? Ygritte fell silent. What's in the Frost Fangs that your king could want? You can't stay here. There's no food. 
She turned her face away from him. But we get a direct answer to this later in A Storm of Swords, quote. She kicked savagely at the ice beneath her with a heel, chopping out a hunk, a chunk. I'm crying because we never found the Horn of Winter. We opened half a hundred graves and let all those shades loose in the world and never found the Horn of Joramin to bring this cold thing down. That is really tragic and stunning when you put it together. If it's all true, and I think it probably is, we have to assume those shades that she's referring to are the others. I mean, what other shades are there? And it's, it's, it's clearly great as a brave woman. She faces John's dirk at her throat. She faces Corrin, and she admits straight up that her people would torture Corrin if they could. She faces execution bravely, but this... He pulled Longclaw over a shoulder. Aren't you afraid? Last night I was, she admitted. But now the sun's up. So it sounds like she's afraid of the others who only pose a threat at night and not during daylight. What it sounds like, let's put all this together. Mance wanted to bring his people south to, to, to flee from the others, according to him, much later anyway. But according to this quote about the shades being woken up, it was searching for the horn that led to the others waking up in the first place. So what that means is Mance united the free folk, went looking for the horn to bring down the wall so these people could cross and ended up waking up the others and putting them putting themselves in position where they had to cross or else they would die. Indeed. So instead, they loosed these so-called shades into the world and went from wanting to bring down the wall to wanting to hide on the other side of it. So clarification here. Yeah. When it comes to shades. Yeah. Have we looked into, like, when else is it used? In what context is one question I have. The word shade? Yeah. Yeah, not much. And, yeah. well, because my, my main question is, does she specifically mean the others? Because that isn't how I'd always interpreted it. I'd always thought she meant, you said, she said all those whites. We said all those dead people because you opened their graves. That could be. That, yeah. I just wanted, I, that's how I had interpreted it, but you seemed like you thought it was so clear cut that it was the others, so I didn't know if I'm missing something. Well, I think I think shade is not a very good fit for whites because shade is like shadow and the others are called white shadows and, and yeah. whites are just living body or de- undead corpses. Yeah, but to me, I'm like, oh, it's like a ghost, you know, a yeah. shade of someone. It's a shade of their, you know. Yeah, you might self. be right. I could be, I could be pushing this idea too far, I, but I definitely don't think shade is a very good word for a white Mm. um so it is confusing it is very confusing so either way we have this interesting topic of the horn whether this horn could bring down the wall and in the midst of all that we have a sentry with a horn that also can't be blown quote they'll have a horn said stone snake the half hand said a horn they must not blow so yeah, <laughs> that phrase looms pretty large. Definitely don't let that horn get blown. Neither of these horns can get blown. The horn of winter definitely shouldn't be blown, uh, and neither should that one have been blown, the one that would alert the wildlings to the presence of John and his friends. Of course, the eagle did that later. They got alerted anyway, but hey. Just as Mance and his people never get to blow the horn to bring down the wall, as, as Grit laments later, the nameless man killed by Stone Snake never gets to blow his either. Can I bring something up before we get bogged down past it? Yeah. A bunch of people in the chat said they also interpreted shades as ghosts, as spirits of the dead, because shadow, like that the others are described as shadows, but shades would be spirits of the dead, ghost of a human. They think she's referencing that they're desecrating graves, releasing ghosts. Anyways, I just wanted to bring up that some people specifically, other people were like, shade is a shadow. 
There's a lively debate going on in our chat, but I think a lot of people were surprised at the okay. interpretation. Yeah. So. All right. Yeah, fair. Fair points. Yeah. Um, yeah, fair interpretation. I'm I'm certainly not trying to sit here and say I definitely know the answer. Yeah. Uh, but that is definitely the way I lean. And it would make sense, too. Like, if they were opening those shades, opening those graves, uh, loosing bodies into the world. Then the others will be more active. The others would be more active. It would allow them. It would give them more fuel, perhaps. It would give them uh, an ability to to get moving. If it's just them, they have less ability. But if they have an army of the dead, that certainly gives them more power. Um, and that might be why Ygritte is like, burn the bodies. Because yeah. we made that mistake before. We didn't yeah. burn the bodies in those graves we opened. And we're, paying, we're all paying for that yeah, now. Yeah, we set them loose on the world. Um, the other thing, these, uh, I will say Christine David also brings up the idea of Craster leaving his children for the others yeah. for you know, such a long period of time and how much that plays into them being woken up. And yeah. And then, of course, that begs the question, why did Craster start doing that in the first place? <laughs> yeah. Which is that's a whole other rabbit hole. But it's a good rabbit hole to go down to. And it's, it's definitely related to this. So the man that Stone Snake kills never gets to blow his horn, and that's a brave man, right? John later admires that he tries to blow the horn instead of reaching for his sword, which is exactly the conversation Theon and his guards have in the last chapter when that man is killed by direwolves. Erzin wonders why that guy didn't blow his horn, and Theon says, what chance did he have to blow his horn? Well, this chance, very little, but the guy tried. So notice all these huge connections between John 6 and Theon 4. It's a substantial amount of connections. It's not as obvious the first time through because the bail, the bard hiding in the crypts part is, well, a first time reader doesn't necessarily know that they're hiding in the crypts, even though that is what bail, the bard does. And that is perhaps where OSHA got the idea. OSHA may have been the one that suggested they hide down in the crypts. And if she and she would know the story of bail, the bard better than you know, the Southerners would because just like John didn't know the story very well and Grit knew it quite well. Well, Osha came, comes from beyond the wall. She would probably know the story even better than Grit because she's older than Grit, And uh, so maybe that's why she thought of it. So of course we know as well that Mance is Abel the Bard and that Bale and Abel are anagrams and that his spear wives were also looking for the crypts before their failed escape from Winterfell in Theon's chapters in The Dance of Dragons. So not only do John and Theon have these connections now in their chapters, but they have these connections later because obviously Mance and Abel is all very wrapped up in John's arc. And of course, Theon is the, the ghost in Winterfell watching all these things go down and uh, being a part of them uh, when he tries to help the uh, Spearwives escape. But what John 6 says about the rest of his arc, if not the entire series, is huge too. Ultimately, the story of Bale the Bard tells us so many things. At its core, it's a story about humans being humans. It doesn't matter what blood you have, especially when the question is, do you deserve to live? Yeah, you deserve to live no matter who you are or who you were born as. Maybe your actions change that fact, but just as a, as a function of birth, whether you have wildling blood, Stark blood, or, you know, hidden Targaryen blood in John's case, you're still human. You're still a person. You still deserve rights and love and life and all that. John, though, interestingly denies some parts of the story. He just, he's like, never happened. No, this bail, we're not, I'm not related to wildlings. Nonsense. <laughs> but he's going to do a full circle on that later. Because when he argues to his Night's Watch officers that we need to have the wildlings on our side, that's some of the exact arguments he makes. He doesn't say we're all related, but he does say, look, they're human like us. 
They can fight for us just like anyone else. And you don't want them fighting against us as undead. So the one time John interrupts Igrit's telling of this tale, it's to ask, which Brandon are you talking about? Which is an ironic question, given that Brandon is hiding amongst all those Brandons. <laughs> so that's a fun little nod to kind of, George is like trying to get us to think about the crypts to, to sell the mystery or to, to, to complete it for us. And this is one little part of that. So even the Bale of the Bard story uh, it also contains House Bolton at the end, which is yet another connection to all this. He, he says that, or she says rather, that the stark son of Bale kills his own father unwittingly and then is flayed because of the curse of kinslaying. And well, that could indeed relate to the Theon part because Theon does get flayed. And well, he doesn't face his son in battle later, he may not have even been his son, but if it was his son, the little Miller's boy, then that certainly fits this part of the story. A few other details stand out. Grit mentions the glass gardens of Winterfell, which is this very specific feature which helps give the story some credibility because someone like Grit wouldn't know the glass gardens exist. She certainly hasn't seen Winterfell, let alone its specific features. She also tells the story in a way that has Bale coming down the King's Road, which is... Uh, almost certainly a flaw in the story. Authentic flaw, meaning it's part of the authentic flavoring of the story. Like, Igrit, it's a legend from long ago. It shouldn't be perfectly told. It should have mistakes and anachronisms and inconsistencies. And that's exactly what this is. It's an anachronism. The King's Road was built only about 250 years ago, which is not long enough ago for this story to have faded so much. And of course, you've got other parts of the story that make it seem much, much older, like the Boltons doing flaying and all these other things. So, but anyway, but that's, that's gives it the authentic flavoring I referred to. How would Igrit know the precise details of what truly happened with Bale the Barge? He's not a narrator. Even our history books in A Song of Ice and Fire aren't narrated. So the characters certainly aren't going to have the truth. And as predictive tools for A Song of Ice and Fire which this is, Bale the Bard, right? It's, a his, it's an example of historical foreshadowing. It's a story and a song. Uh, it's also a legend. And these things don't always come to pass exactly the same way, right? There's inversions, there's spinoffs, there's mistakes, there's anachronisms, like I said. There's room for these old tales to have been exaggerated or for a few key meanings to have changed over time. And George also wants to keep us on our toes. For example, Bale and his Stark bride have a child down in the crypts. That's not going to happen in in our story, in the, in the main story, in the Song of Ice and Fire proper. There's not, not going to be a child born down in the crypts, though you could say that Bran was metaphorically born or reborn down there because that's when he fully embraces who he is and has his real awakening down in the darkness there as a skin changer. His powers, he, he, he fully kind of takes hold of them down there. But also, it's not meant to be taken literally that, that Bale and his Stark bride lived in the crypts for a darn year. <laughs> the birth and the, the pregnancy entirely happened down there. That's, see, that's part of the, the legendary part of this. There's another infer, a possibility for the idea of the flaying part here. I mentioned that Theon gets flayed and maybe kills his own son. In Bale's story, it's his son is flayed, not the, ch- not the father. But in current times, according to the Pink Letter, it seems Abel's spearwives, some of whom posed as his daughters, you know, as an alternative to son, according to the letter, they were flayed. Now, the letter probably isn't accurate, but parts of it probably are, and that might be accurate. I could believe that part of it because it does seem that the spearwives were captured. 
and Ramsey flaying a captive is, well, you don't, that's no stretch at all. Roos may even be for it because Roos also would be wondering what the hell's going on and he might be, yeah, torture them, find out what they know. That seems right normal for a Bolton to do. And of course, wrapped up in both of those parts is Theon. Uh, like I said, not only is his, not only is there the possibility of the Kinslayer bit, but Theon is going to deal directly with Abel and the Spearwives and a certain stolen daughter, <laughs> fake Arya, and all that. So John and Theon don't have a lot in common personality-wise, but they have a lot in common circumstance-wise and a lot in terms of upbringing. It's just that John listened to Ned and Theon didn't. Theon is trying to reject what he learned from Ned, rejecting that part of himself, even though he can't because it's too much a part of him. Joe points out that it's been a while that John has switched over to a new mentor. He's had several mentors, some of them very brief, Benjen, Donald Noy, Eamon, Gior, and now perhaps one of the greatest influences of all, even though it's pretty short, Corin Halfhand. And Egret. Egret's a bit of a mentor in her own way, even though they're of an age. Egret is pretty smart telling the Bale the Bard story. Not only is it a delay tactic, but it kind of brings them a little closer together. It bonds them a bit. It makes it harder for John to kill her because he knows her. He's gotten to know her a bit and, and learn a little about her. There's some humanity between them. But also the idea that they're kin is uh, that they're all related is pretty clever because you got a, 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 the idea of kin slaying is something that both cultures share wildlings and northerners and this, the rest of the south they don't like kinsling it's very taboo so if he can she can kind of drop that hint that this would be kinsling well all the more reason to help her survive and it's clever on george's part to conceal the Rhaegar liana mystery amidst this wildling bit amidst this oh your father is a wildling not ned stark nope it's not mance <laughs> mance isn't Rhaegar, but it is we are touching on why people got off track with theories like that. Interestingly, too, about the first kill for John, I wonder if that's part of why Rob didn't get a POV, because having John think about his first kill is something that Rob would have to do too. Rob would have to ha- he would have to have that moment where Rob thinks about the first time he killed somebody. Not having Rob a POV means not having to do those kind of things twice. All right, a few random questions from y'all. Several comments, one of our longer comment sections here. Andrea Johnson, do we know for certain the others can bring back any dead that they don't kill? No, we don't know that, but it seems to be maybe true because there's a lot of dead at the Fist of the First Men, and some of them appear to be dead for a long time, and some of them are animals. So it strongly hinted that they can raise any corpse. Maybe there's some magic to interfere with that but maybe Dragonglass, for example. But we'll see. John Magician asked that they build the King's Road over an existing road between Winterfell and the Night's Watch. Probably because that would be a a well-traveled path. Maybe one of those like naturally formed paths just from people going up and down so often. But as far as paving, actual King's Road, no. And they wouldn't have called it King's Road, certainly. But I think Joe is right that there was almost certainly some sort of beaten path. Because yeah, Winterfell and the Night's Watch, they have a lot of business with each other. Facundo Clemente says the part where the mother of Lord Stark throws herself through the window makes me think of Ashara Dane. Yeah, that's a great call. Yeah, because that comes from the Bale the Bard story when 
the son returns with the head of the dead father, <laughs> which is Bale, uh, not knowing he's parading the head of his own father, the, the mother kills herself because that's, you know, her lover that uh, her son just killed and she can't handle that, which is, and that is a really good connection to Ashara Dane because Ashara Dane may have killed herself because Lord Stark killed Arthur Dane, her brother, and she may have been part of the reason that happened. Maybe she told Ned where the Tower of Joy was. Either way, whether she did or not, whether she has any guilt or not, the idea that she threw herself over a, a, a social issue like her friends killing each other or her family killing themselves, that is very similar. So like I said, I'm not a fan of the Rhaegar Mance theories, but if you've ever wondered where that theory came from, well, this Bale the Bard story is the main culprit. <laughs> the part where Bale comes back and refuses to kill his own son this is why people think that Mance is Rhaegar, because Mance refused to kill John and trusted him more than he should have, probably. So people are like, well, that's because Mance is Rhaegar. But this idea is highly convoluted. I mean, how is Rhaegar not killed at the Trident? I mean, Danny did just have that vision of him dying at the Trident. We just saw that. <laughs> and it, that was a vision, not, you know, like, are, the, are we supposed to believe the House of the Undying are trying to mislead her on that point? No, nah, I don't think so. Robert's Warhammer was sunken into the chest of Rhaegar Targaryen. He is dead, dead, dead. It's way too convoluted for him to be alive. So, so this is why I earlier spoke on how these historical parallels aren't one-to-one relationships. But hey, depending on how uh, that other answer shakes out, maybe he'll he'll be brought back to life. Yeah, as that's white. true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> no, I wonder what happened to Rhaegar's body. Like, obviously, Targaryens what like to be burned. I think it was burned. Yeah, I'm I mean, not sure. if it's funny because if they burned him, it would it would have been meant as a sign of disrespect, but it would have been a sign of respect. Yeah, <laughs> it's like uh, Targaryens usually do that, but yeah, it's a good point. I don't know what they did with it. Uh, also on topic of John's parentage, there's this quote when Igrit, when Igrit asked who John's mother was. Some woman, most of them are. Someone had said that to him once. He did not remember who. But we do. It was Tyrion in A Game of Thrones, John 1, John's very first chapter. How about that? Yeah, and of course, this is also an Ashara Dane uh, connecting point. It's very subtle because at this point in the story, we're still supposed to be suspicious that Ashara is John's mother. And so when she's asking about who John's mother is, we're supposed to think of that. And then we hear the bail, the barge story and hear of a woman jumping out the window. And these, these dots are supposed to connect in our subconscious at the least. Here, we're connecting them quite consciously. Esther McGriff points out that Igrit escapes in the TV show, that she gets away, that John doesn't spare her. And that is just such a weaker way to do it because John sparing Igrit is so important. <laughs> to his his attitude, who he is, to being like his father and to sparing the wildlings later. But, eh, you know, they did their thing. So uh, Orel's, speaking of the TV show, Orel's death was also very different in the show. Thanks to the law of conservation of wildlings, Orel lives all the way till John refuses to kill the old hapless villager. So it's a different person he refuses to kill, whereupon John kills Orel instead. So in both versions, John, Orel gets killed instead of someone else. <laughs> it's like, no wonder Eagle, the Eagle hates John so much. It's like, you really, I hate you because you specifically killed me and not all these other people. Like, wh- what did I ever do to you, John? So Orel is conquered by Varamir in the books, only to be burned badly by Melisandre. And Varamir claims that 
Melisandre burning the eagle like that completely ended Orel's consciousness. That was the end of him. But apparently not the end of the eagle, because if Orel's consciousness ended and the eagle didn't, well, I don't know why he would say it that way if the eagle was, was still was dead. But I, that is a bit of a surprise that the eagle is still alive after being burned like that. So in the past, I've said that Orel was, I think I've said in the past that Orel translates to eagle in Hungarian, but I was wrong. It's Czech, not Hungarian. So small mistake, but good to correct. And it's Orel, O-R-E-L, not E-L-L, but small difference. Kind of cool. The reason that's funny is, well, if anyone who's watched South Park knows there's a, there was an episode where they had a bunch of animals that were like forest critters who were all friendly, but actually quite evil. And they were all named after themselves. There was like Barry the bear and Squirrely the squirrel. And so this is Eagly the eagle because he's Eagle the eagle, Orel the Orel. Uh, speaking of animals, a quick shout out to the shadow cats doing humanity all kinds of favors, right? Uh, Egrets like burn the bodies and, and instead they, they're fed to the shadow cats. How many shadow cats have eaten how many corpses? That's a lot of corpses. The shadow cats have really helped humanity out by eating a lot of the army of the dead before it could get going. Good kitties. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Shout out to the kitties. <laughs> On our last little bit here, our last little trivia tidbit, let's take a look at this fellow quote. In the spring of his youth, he had been squire to a king, so the Black Brothers still called him Squire Dalbridge. The fandom long suspected, given his age, that he was a squire to King Jaehaerys II. Not the old king, that's Jaehaerys I. This is the son of Egg, Ares' dad that we're talking about, Danny's granddad. That theory was confirmed by the World of Ice and Fire app. Jaehaerys II's reign was very short, which would perhaps explain why Squire Dalbridge was never knighted. He was almost certainly nobly born, even though Papa Egg had a commoner leading his king's guard, Dunk. That was a huge exception. A commoner as a squire to a king might be even rarer, since getting to be a squire is usually about birth rather than something you can win via merit. While king's guard, you can, you can get the white cloak through merit. So it would seem that Squire Dalbridge did like the, the noble, honorable kind of thing you do when your master dies young. So he took the black in honor of the king he served closely, who also died young. That adds a somber but poignant note to, to Squire Dalbridge's ending, because he's going to give his own life to save his companions too. It seems like the kind of guy he is, he very much a life of service. Back to the chapter as a whole. I want to return to John's decision to spare Egret because it's a decision that proves crucial as well in other ways, besides just a, speaking to the kind of person he is. Uh, without Igrit, Rattleshirt might not have allowed John to join with him. Rattleshirt was against it. He's like, nah, don't let him join. Let's kill him. Other people argued for letting him join, and Igrit was the most forceful of them. And so Rattleshirt, because the wildlings are somewhat democratic, Rattleshirt couldn't just give the order. It was he was outvoted. So given what we said about John sparing Igrit as groundwork for him sparing all the wildlings later, I wonder if that will save his life later as well. Or humanity, meaning Igrit is gone, but there's others like Tormund who could tell us what they've seen. Tormund has been reluctant to talk about the others to this point, but we could learn this question about shades and whites and others. Tormund was there. He could tell, he could give us the answer. And if not him, Certainly, there's other wildlings who were there as well that could tell us about these graves, more about the others, and maybe more about human sacrifice. So these answers are still out there. We might be told, and it could be because 
the wildlings aren't all killed off. If the wildlings are killed off, that knowledge dies with them. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So you had uh, a note here? Yeah, just uh, we were talking about Rhaegar and what was done with his body. Okay. Joe Magician uh, brought up that he was burned. Cool. And when I, I checked that, um, so spake Martin from 2008. All right. George Very said clear. Rhaegar was cremated in the style of fallen Targaryens. It doesn't answer to me who treated him with disrespect. <laughs> so as to to cremate him in that style, but uh, yeah, he answered that. It sort of makes sense uh, if they were because they're basically a big part of Robert's ascension to the throne was his Targaryen blood. So it may have been kind of a political thing to show like he's still kind of connected to that dynasty. Yeah, he showed. Yeah, even though his the, personal feelings are yeah. Rhaegar's side, he had to show a little more magnanimity. Magnanimity. So <laughs> ro- basically, Robert should have been burned. what did they do with robert's body i guess he was just yeah i don't know it's a question i was just as i said it i was like trying to think about buried yeah yeah i don't remember (laughs) i don't don't remember it being put out like to to look at like tywin or john aaron no yeah me neither Uh, yeah well that is it folks this turned out to be our longest episode of the valoritas to date not too much of a surprise given the House of the Undying and the Bale the Bard stories are both giants amongst the uh, the whole run of A Song of Ice and Fire. Hugely important. So much to say about them. <laughs> On top of that, we had lots of other things like Arya and with her moment with Jockin. And y'all were particularly... Uh, You're apparently dedicated to the idea of making us hit three hours and 30 minutes instead of three hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, I'll make it quick. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for all the great questions. That's what I was getting up to. Is you guys asked a lot of great questions today. had a lot of great comments that deserved thorough answers. So thanks to y'all for that. Thanks to all the all y'all who are patrons to keep us going financially. It's hugely important. We thank you so much. And this time of year, when there hasn't been a TV show in a while, there won't be another one for a while, and we don't have any new books for a while, this is when things start to, to start to fall off a little bit for us. Our patronage declines during these sort of dry times. But we're still going full steam, so we would definitely appreciate any support you think is worthy. So thanks also to uh, everyone who came uh, live, everyone who's going to share and like, thanks to Joe Buckley for all his comments. Thank you to our History of Westeros mods for doing a great job of leading the discussions on Facebook with regards to these discussions and posting the artwork. Uh, thank you to other regular contributors like Nina and Tree Girl and Stefan B, who are very active on our various forms of social media. And thanks to Michael Clarfell, thanks to Joey Townsend, Jesse Kowal, and... Uh, Kevin McLeod for all the music we use. Thanks to our engineer. Uh, Shay and I also want to tell you what's coming next. So next week, ah, not next week. I apologize. I misspoke. We are not doing an episode next week. It is Thanksgiving week. It's also my birthday tomorrow. Yeah. AKA Monday the 25th. Yes, it's his birthday. He almost scheduled a stream for Thursday Thanksgiving. I did. I almost I was did. Like, he was like, Papa, I'm streaming with Kyle and, and Gemma, you know, days or hype on Thursday. I'm like, what? <laughs> Thanksgiving, dude. Like, oh, whoops. <laughs> they're both, they're German and Canadian, respectively. <laughs> so, so they didn't think of, <laughs> they didn't think of uh, Thanksgiving. But yes, we're taking that weekend off. There will be an episode on Saturday, though. Sean and I will be talking to Kim Renfro of Insider Magazine, who wrote a book called The Unofficial Guide to Game of Thrones. It's a great book. We're going to talk about it. Plus, we're going to talk about House of the Dragon, and we're going to banter. We always have fun bantering with Kim. She's really fun and funny. 
and uh, she has she's got a lot of stories about bad theories out there. So we that's something we'll probably talk about as well. So that's gonna be recorded on our on our semi recurring Saturday two o'clock streams, and we'll put we'll end up being posted on Sunday. So well, there will be an episode next weekend. It just won't be Valerie Reedus, and then we're back to our regular schedule. So on the week of I guess it would be. December 8th weekend, December 8th, Sunday, we'll be doing. Yeah, so, no, wait, that's November. Yeah, December 8th, yes. You'll be doing it from Radio Westeros. I will be in Boston broadcasting from the household of Radio Westeros this episode, and it will be, oh my goodness, I didn't put the the title numbers in there. It just says the chapter name. So it's the Gang Lights Fires of All Sizes, (laughs) a.k.a. the one with Sansa's coming of age. That's Sansa 4. The gang shares dreams, a.k.a. the one with eagle versus wolf. That's John 7. Uh, the gang kidnaps the wrong sex worker, a.k.a. the one with news of dead Starks. That is Tyrion 12. The one where there are no men like me, a.k.a. the gang frees the Kingslayer. I think that's Catelyn 6. It might be Catelyn 5. Then there's the one where Asha passes through, a.k.a. the one where the gang murders their own. That's Theon 5. And then finally... And the gang sings a pre-battle hymn, a.k.a. the one where Cersei explains the dearth of sacking songs. That is Sansa 5. So, I guess I got the chapter numbers in there after all. (laughs) By memory. All right, cool, everybody. Extra long episode, which is funny that at the beginning of this episode is where I announced that starting with the Storm of Swords, we'll be doing one fewer chapter per week. So that should help with these long episodes. But you know how we do. Better to have a long episode than to cut things out and to not be thorough. Other people summarize and shorten. That's not how we roll. We go as long as it takes and have fun the whole time. So until next time, on behalf of Ashea, thank you all. I can speak for myself. (laughs) You can. But I don't. (laughs) No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, all I only have to say left is Valar Rerius.